Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Abby Martin. And Mike Preisner. So today we felt like kind of diving into the whole COVID discussion <laughs> two years into this. Uh, for a reason, though, Mike. Um, it all kind of came to a head when our whole household got sick from COVID. And I had a pretty bad case of it, actually. I I had severe cramping in, all throughout my body, and it was really, really, really intense. Uh, Mike and I are both vaccinated. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know if that, that helped to stave off the worst effects from continuing for several days longer. But I posted about it on Twitter, which I immediately regretted, just trying to garner information from my audience about who had had similar side effects from COVID. Um, and a lot of the responses were very helpful. Unfortunately, quite a few responses were basically declaring that I had a vaccine injury because I guess stating openly that you know, preempting my COVID symptoms by saying I'm vaccinated was basically my political statement. It was kind of disturbing, actually, to see the reaction to me declaring that I was vaccinated and had these horrible COVID symptoms was basically, you have a vaccine injury. You have a vaccine injury. And it was just kind of strange. Like, the disconnect was kind of strange because I was like, look, I got vaccinated like six months ago wouldn't you just immediately assume that the um, effects that I'm experiencing now are a direct result of getting COVID three days prior to having these symptoms? So I guess that's what made me want to like explore this topic further and really coming from a place of understanding and empathy. I come from a place of like great empathy and understanding for just conspiracy thinking. Um I kind of started off more into conspiracies and not so I totally understand like the framework of looking at COVID in terms of like how is the government seizing this crisis, exploiting it, profiting off it. I I totally get that there's a lot of media disinformation with the mainstream media and there's a inherent distrust of government institutions as well as there should be. But I think that, you know, giving a lot of space and understanding to the framework, uh, the more conspiratorial framework of just COVID in general, and also just understanding and giving empathy for vaccine hesitancy, because, you know, we're in a country right now where I think like 60 percent of Americans have gotten one or two doses of the vaccine and a lot of people have not. And at this point, I think that that choice um, is not going to change, probably. I think a lot of people have just already made up their mind. And you know, we're at a place right now where kind of the pandemic has been declared over, like the political establishment has moved on. Um, everyone's pretty much back to work. Yeah. So, Abby, after your uh, vax injury went viral and uh, so many people were confident in diagnosing you as having a vax injury and uh, telling you how to treat it and, and all of this stuff, um, you know, about a week or so later, uh, this is February 3rd, actually, we just did a pretty simple tweet from the Empire Files account. And all that tweet said was that the number of COVID deaths were 893,000 and made a comparison to the U.S. Civil War, which is the bloodiest war in American history, and how uh, there were almost double the number of deaths from COVID in just two years than there was during the entire Civil War, which was four years. So that tweet that simply said, the accurate number that there was 893,000 COVID deaths at that time became its own viral thing uh, about how we were spreading the empire's lies by regurgitating this false death count. Uh, it also went viral on Facebook, which a place I don't go, but 
it was so popular there. Uh, we heard about it, about how we had sold out because we repeated this number, 893,000. I will say, though, in the days since we tweeted that, that was February 3rd. Today is February 11th when we are recording. In just those days since we tweeted it from February 3rd till today, February 11th, 24,000 more Americans have died of COVID. The number now stands at 917,000 U.S. deaths, which is going to be a part of the topic that we are talking about today. And so, you know, we felt that because we realized that there was somewhere in our sphere uh, of people who took great issue with, number one, saying that COVID was a very serious illness that was killing a lot of people. That fact seemed to be controversial. Uh, And then something we followed up with saying that the vaccine is highly effective at preventing people from dying and being hospitalized. And so, you know, I think that it's it's funny that we're doing an episode to talk about those two facts, the seriousness of COVID and the efficacy of the vaccine. But I I clearly were in a, a a place where a lot of people, in fact, many millions of people are getting their information uh, about COVID and information to make their medical decisions from alternative media. And we are are part of that media landscape. We are part of alternative media. And so we wanted to make some kind of contribution to this based on the experience we had in the last week of kind of diving deep into the rabbit hole of the conspiracies and the arguments of people who argue that it's not that bad and you should be more worried about the vaccine and of COVID. But also we want to talk about it because this is relevant to our focus of empire. And I think that the uh, catastrophic failure of the U.S. government to manage this pandemic. I mean, the U.S. is like leading the world in COVID deaths, uh, also as the richest country with the most amount of resources and infrastructure to be able to protect its population from a deadly pandemic like this. And so there is a real story here that relates to the U.S. as this big imperialist war machine that spends all its money uh, on wars abroad and expansion while it leaves its working class to literally die um, and in ways that, in a totally preventative ways and ways that they do not have to. So, Mike, I think going into this, like, I, I want to say that I completely understand where people are coming from and I'm empathetic and I just feel like there needs to be space for the dialogue because we're seeing an increasingly polarized debate. Somehow this pandemic has become politicized to such an extreme degree that it's nearly impossible to actually talk about these things. We've discussed before on episodes of Media Roots Radio about like the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, for example, and how the dueling realities play out with some of these culture war topics. Um, But to see it play out in terms of COVID is problematic because this is a public health crisis and, you know, we're living in late a late stage capitalist society. And so it's it's exacerbated by the disinformation that is very pervasive and the lack of media literacy. You know, the fact that a lot of people are just seeking out knowledge online because there is no mm-hmm. expansive public health system or public health consciousness in this country. So there's this notion and mantra of rugged individualism and this disassociation with social services and public health needs with the government. You know, we're told that anything that the government can provide is bad. Big government is bad. We're kind of left to fend for ourselves. 
And so I think that that's a really big problem, especially in the country that's leading in COVID deaths that's failing the most in the world. You kind of have to link those things together. I know that the idea of mandates for vaccinations is obviously very broad and there's nuance there, but I, for the record, do not support uh, mandates for vaccinations. Unfortunately, um, this is this is kind of masked in a lot of other things. So you see this call or call against mandates, you know, for example, that rally that was just in D.C. But it seems like there's a lot more beneath the slogan of of mandates. And I think that we really need to delve into these warring realities and understand how we can kind of relate to each other again, because this is just going to get more and more polarized. And there is not enough space and time given in the discussion, because I guess everything's truncated on social media. And there's a huge fucking problem with this reflexive urge to mass ban and purge anyone with a differing opinion, especially people like Robert Malone. Like when someone like this guy who's on the Joe Rogan podcast is banned from Twitter, that's a huge problem. It legitimizes the argument, it legitimizes him, and it makes his ideas way more attractive. And basically people take away from that, oh my God, this is the most important Joe Rogan episode you'll ever hear. You have to watch it. We need to really resist that because I think that it backfires in a tremendous way. And then it basically just sanitizes people's landscape from that these views even exist. And it prevents us from understanding the argument, right? I need to understand why the divide is so stark. It is just a huge problem, the influence of big pharma, which we'll talk about. And it's a problem that the empire has basically abandoned the notion of any public health response other than everyone needs to do their part and get vaccinated and having these kind of shame hate campaigns for random people who are unvaccinated and dying. I just don't think any of this is helpful. And it just leads us to where we are, where, you know, as much as the liberal media does zero in on things like Black Lives Matter and COVID deaths for perhaps ratings or sensationalism, it doesn't make these issues any less relevant, right? And I think that's what we talk about a lot, this reflexive contrarianism to just basically go against what the liberal mainstream media is saying. And again, the the media is not a monolithic hegemonic entity that only espouses liberal talking points. There is a huge, arguably bigger ecosphere of right wing media disinformation that is constantly pumped out there and repeated ad nauseum by Falun Gong backed Epic Times uh, OANN network. I mean, the outlets are too numerous to count uh, and they are so widespread and actually way more influential. I don't know any like liberal media that's actually popular on like AM talk radio. Think about how many people are driving to work all across middle America, just being that kind of Fox news stuff being pumped into their brains on a daily basis. And so because so this huge, powerful right wing media machine is already in lockstep about the other reality, right, that the vaccines are killing people, that COVID is actually being totally overblown and that we we don't need any public health measures. And in fact, we reject those because it's a symbol of big government and big government's bad. Unfortunately, this reflexive contrarianism plays out a lot in alternative media. Um, as journalist Mark Ames pointed out, which I think was very astute, he just said, quote, if you want to make a living in indie anti-establishment media, it helps to pontificate against mainstream COVID science and promote anti-vax, bodily autonomy, etc., like how liberal corporate media journos, journos need to tow mainstream COVID line to succeed. Pressures to conform exist in both worlds. This is a really important thing. And, you know, 
Mike and I exist in this space. So as much as we wanted to stay out of it because this is such a polarizing topic, we were kind of dragged into it without even really meaning to be. And so we feel like now we have a, an obligation to weigh in and weigh in in a responsible manner. Yeah, and I, I think we understand that probably the vast majority of our audience uh, is already on board with the idea that COVID is very serious and bad in a deadly pandemic and that uh, there is a life-saving vaccine that is widely available and safe and effective. Regardless of that, I think that if you are already won over to that, uh, I think that this, it, these interviews and the rest of the discussion can really help not just teach you stuff you, you maybe didn't know, but give you the tools and the confidence to have these discussions with people. Because, you know, I have uh, family, I have friends, uh, people that are extremely vaccine skeptical still. And, you know, I, we know that all of us through this pandemic have been doing what we can to help help protect people that that we care about. Um, and of course, there are definitely, uh, we also respect that there's people in our audience who uh, are still skeptical of the vaccine and aren't trusting what they're being told about COVID by the mainstream media and big pharma. And so we want to reiterate, we have nothing but sympathy for people who are vaccine skeptical or hesitant or don't trust what's going on. I mean, yeah, and there's clearly been a, a new surge in this movement. Uh, you could call it the anti-vax movement or whatever. Um, and that's for understandable reasons also. I mean, I think that uh, that Barry Weiss clip that was kind of viral from the, from real time with Bill Maher, where she's like, I'm done with COVID, I'm done, um, you know, and deciding that she the pandemic is over. I mean, it, that was quite stupid the way that she put it, but it's true that everyone is frustrated. I mean, this this sucks. I mean, we... Everyone, when this started, it was terrifying. Uh, people were dying. Uh, we were very concerned about families. And everything was all holding out for the vaccine to come. And then everyone was waiting. When is there going to be a vaccine? And then we knew the vaccine was coming. And then it was people started getting it. And then there was this feeling that this was it. Once everyone got the vaccine, we had beaten COVID. And we, are, we were going to move on with our lives. We were going to get to see uh, elderly family members again. Uh, and things were going to go back to normal. And things did for like a month. Uh, and then Omicron happened. And then this new wave happened where now, um, you know, January of 2022, not January of 2021, which was the deadliest month of COVID for the entire pandemic. But just this past month, January 2022, COVID was the number one leading cause of death for ages 45 to 54. And the number two leading cause of all death in all age groups. Uh, that's 60,000 people dead in the month of January alone. Most of them, almost all of them were unvaccinated and uh, most of them also were over the age of 65 and unvaccinated. So the fact that that many people in such a vulnerable age group were not vaccinated, uh, number one, speaks to the need for information that we thought was common knowledge to get out there more. Um, but that that new Omicron surge, that's what kind of reinvigorated, you know, these demonstrations we're seeing in, in Canada and elsewhere, uh, the anti-lockdown stuff, the, um, you know, that reinvigorated the anti-vax movement saying, see, the vaccine doesn't work and all of these things, because there was this understandable just uh, fatigue from having to deal with this whole thing. I mean, it's, it's horrible. It sucks. I mean, we feel it uh, very personally, too. I mean, um, 
Abby and I had a child almost two years ago now, born in the pandemic. And it's been really important for us to go visit my grandmother, who's very close to me for my entire life and for her to see our child in person. Um, and I just we just talked to her the other day and um, saying that, oh, we just had COVID. So we have natural immunity plus vaccine plus booster. It should be safe to come see you. And um, it was she is still too scared. She's 90 years old. And um, it was very difficult for her to tell us that. It was very difficult for us to hear it. And, you know, we're, we know that we're just one of literally hundreds of millions of families in the United States that are dealing with this same thing so long into this. And so we're, we're all feeling uh, the frustration, but uh, unfortunately uh, that frustration and fatigue has, has turned to, uh, turned to things that are quite negative and are only going to make things worse. And so what we hope to do in this episode, we're talking to two experts, medical, a medical doctor and a geneticist, people who know this topic very, very well. It's uh, going to be a fascinating interview. And then after the interview, Abby and I are going to continue uh, with some of our own closing thoughts uh, on the topic and about the industry of content creation that is telling you things that are opposite of what you're about to hear in this interview. Thank you so much, uh, Fatima and Shuvo, for joining us on the Empire Files podcast. We're really, really privileged and honored to be here. Thank you for having us. So why don't we start by just having you each explain what you do and how it relates to the field of medicine. So I'm a, a pediatrician uh, working mainly in development and behavior. So seeing kids with disabilities and various uh, specific kinds of uh, neurodevelopmental concerns or conditions. Uh, but um, as a general pediatrician, as part of my work too, I'm at the Montreal Children's Hospital and uh, have been you know, privy to a lot of what's been happening through the course of this pandemic um, and just sort of seen you know, the day-to-day -day management um, that's taken place on the, both inpatient and outpatient services um, and, and outpatient clinics that are uh, dealing with a lot of the uh, sort of, let's say, fallout from what's happened with the pandemic. And uh, I'm also involved uh, academically at McGill University. Um, so I've seen the, the impact this has had on students and trainees. And I'm also involved in administration um, at the McGill University Health Center in Montreal. Um, so I do get a chance to have conversations with hospital administrators and uh, other administrators who are working in the health uh, health community working with the Ministry of Health uh, to be able to sort of see that the other side of the management uh, of, you know, day-to-day -day stuff, but also in the context of this, this conversation of what's been, what's been happening in the pandemic and with COVID. And Fatima? Yes. So I am a geneticist. And for those who don't know what that means, it means that I basically um, study genes that various um, elements that affect uh, genes and how changes in, in our genome can cause a disease. I am also a bioethicist. So um, the way that that relates to the pandemic is, you know, in terms of reviewing pharmaceutical data, reviewing clinical trials, therapeutic uh, trials. And I'm also in medical school. I'm studying to be a doctor soon, fingers crossed. And because of my science background, uh, my expertise in genetics, I am part of a pan-Canadian um, research network uh, 
it's a, a federally funded research network uh, called Coronavirus Variants Rapid Response Network. So we are the team that basically monitors and surveys the variants of concern or emergence. We characterize the variants, how the mutations affect the uh, functionality, the transmissibility, the virulence of the virus, and what, how it can affect vaccines and immunity. And um, I've been a science communicator, a health literacy um, outreach enthusiast for about nine years. Excellent. Uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your extremely busy schedule to talk to us today. And, you know, Shuva, you're not just any doctor. You're not just any pediatrician. You're an anti-imperialist. You're an alternative media watching doctor who we actually met through your support of my work on Breaking the Set and then, of course, Empire Files. Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it, we, go, we go back a while now, which is, which is great. So you're not just... Um, you know, MSM loving, paid by big, pharma. paid by big pharma liberal who's just parroting uh, exactly. MSM talking points and just regurgitating what you see on CNN. You actually <laughs> are coming yep. at this from a very critical lens as someone who has been in this kind of world for a long time. So I wanted to give our listeners that context as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Abby. And I, may, I might just add a one-liner or two-liner to that because, you know, I think it's really important. Um, to kind of understand that there is there is a, a real concern that isn't necessarily just um, you know something that we should facetiously laugh off about uh, some healthcare professionals being kind of in the pocket of big pharma or having um, you know maybe not the best interests of the public at heart when they speak about certain things or they make certain decisions in healthcare. But it is absolutely true that for the most part, um, you know, kind of on the ground level, uh, most of the healthcare professionals that we are privileged to work with have really nothing going on and no, no gain. And I personally, um, you know, feel like I, I, I work hard to kind of call out on ethical grounds anytime uh, somebody's going to be having personal profit or gain um, or is kind of shadily. Um, on, you know, on that gray, gray line between, um, you know, what's, what's right or wrong in terms of decision making for the patients uh, and the public's interest, because they might be manipulated or might be pushed in the direction um, by a company or a pharmaceutical, uh, you know, executive, for example. So, I, I, you know, I'm, as you just stated, I've been like sort of on the, um, on the side of keeping my eyes wide open about all that stuff for a very long time. And, uh, and I'm, I, I mean, MSNBC is like, is not a channel that, that gets turned on in our household, you know, for example. <laughs> um, so we're not, we're not just sitting here like, you know, trying to watch uh, mainstream media uh, as our sources for even information about anything outside of the pandemic, let alone what's been happening in the pandemic. And I, I think that that's a really important point to understand. Um, that there are still a large number of health professionals who feel that way too. Yeah, and I think that's a good place to start because in this episode, we're going to be talking a lot about the science that you both uh, feel is credible and the science people should be trusting. And of course, there are dueling science narratives out there. 
Um, There is also science being used by the anti-vax community, a lot of which is kind of cherry-picked from other studies and and pieced together in a disingenuous way. But, you know, there are scientists and doctors that are providing uh, a narrative different than what the I would say the mainstream uh, COVID narrative is. So to start this discussion, maybe we could talk about that first. And Fatima, maybe you can start, and Shuvo, if you have any comments, follow up. Mm-hmm. But how, why do you, quote unquote, trust the science uh, of conventional thought on COVID and not trust the science that's being put out by people uh, saying the types of things that we're going to talk about? And what I mean by that is like, what is... How does one come to a a scientific consensus? How does something become accepted as legitimate and valid in the medical community? You know, the apparatus of journals and studies and and all of the things like when do you find something to be credible and not credible as a scientist? Right. Uh, That's a very good question. So I want to say that I do not I'm here without any conflict of interest. Um, As I mentioned, I'm a bioethicist. So in, in the scientific conduct for me, bioethics is not just a background thing. It's it's very much on the foreground of all the work that I do. And um, I'm not being paid by any organizations or pharmaceutical company or biotech company uh, to advocate for any specific uh, uh, treatment or, or uh, solution. In fact, being a medical student, I'm thousands of dollars in student debt. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. Um, yeah, so just wanted to say it's uh, we're we're I'm here to have an honest and open discussion about uh, science and the question that you asked in terms of scientific consensus. It's it's a very it's a very good question, and it's one that us as scientists and uh, healthcare professionals go back and review and and ponder upon as well. Um, because the the process of science is meant to be iterative. It's not a static, the the entire enterprise is not a static one. Um, And there are are times that you come up with a hypothesis, you come up with an evidence that goes against what the majority are saying. The iterative uh, process of science means that something becomes consensus, it becomes accepted when you, uh, when there is enough evidence um, generated to basically um, support that notion that, and that hypothesis. And and then of course, the, the next important question becomes, well, how do we know this is this good, the good evidence? And um, that comes down again uh, to to doing the steps right, making sure that you have checked all the biases, and it's it's a lot easier said than done to make sure that there you've, you've accounted for all the biases, you've left your biases behind, because um, a lot of times you know you do an experiment and you want it to succeed, you want it to get the results and and and. Um, confirm the hypothesis, especially right now in this day and age, um, most of us scientists are reliant on, you rely on sources of funding to to get your experiments going, to get the the, the data and the process of science going. So there, there, there are all these dynamics playing in the background, you wanting to, for your work to be successful, but also being honest about it. So the way all of that comes together is uh, by seeing where the data f- 
false, where the majority, the overwhelming majority of the data that has been generated falls. And, and uh, the data goes through peer reviews, numerous people who are experts in the field review the data, the soundness of it, the equity of it, that it's inclusive, that it's, it's accounted for um, all the potential confounders and how it relates to adjacent knowledge, how it's related to the things we perceive around us, the things, the knowledge that we have gathered in the past. Um, a lot of times, um, even if it's a new idea, even if it might feel like it's a little contradictory to what the um, pervasive ideology is, uh, and I, I can only speak to biological sciences because that's my area of expertise. With the biology, it's, it's such a beautiful field. Even if it's a little contradictory or, or controversial sounding, if the science is right, it makes sense. You will find a way. There is a logic to it, and you can you can get to it. And that eventually, because that logic is there, other people are able to get that idea go and retry that experiment, replicate it, and again, you, you will have consensus building an overwhelming amount of data and evidence supporting to that hypothesis or pointing to that hypothesis. A very beautiful explanation and really a sound explanation of what a scientific consensus is, and I really appreciate you explaining that. And it, I like that you said it's constantly adapting to the data, you know, the scientific consensus is not political in itself. It, it becomes politicized. The data is just raw data that you know people are then interpreting and, and politicizing. When I started my graduate studies, one of the first thing my um, investigator, my, my supervisor told me was, Fatima, the data is the data. <laughs> and I first looked at him baffled as to what, what does it mean? Of course, the data are the data, but what... <laughs> What are you trying to say here? What he was trying to say is that the data aren't inherently bad or good. It's the hypothesis that what you set out to prove, it, it's that's either flawed. You've 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 observed you've made an observation and you've misinterpreted, and you're you're designing an experiment to test to prove or disprove that flawed observation that you made. Or the methods that are chosen to create the data are wrong. You know, you're supposed to um, use one type of device or one type of reagent, and you've made a mistake, and you've you've chosen a different one and an inappropriate method. Or in the worst case scenario, there are just some bad faith actors or scientists that are um, not driven by the scientific process and and the the beautiful truth that there is to it, um, and uh, the therefore the data that is created is just the data. It's not bad or good on its own. It's the things that lead up to it that are either bad or good. That's a really great addition to that. Um, and I think it's just important to preempt this next question by adding on to this kind of undue influence of big pharma especially in the United States. I mean, there really is just an incredible drive from big pharma over, you know, a lot of doctors who I, I know several pharmaceutical reps who have told me this personally about getting 
you know, kickbacks, the self-diagnosis that's pushed with the constant bombardment of pharmaceutical advertising. I think just the United States and New Zealand are the only countries in the world that allow this direct-to-consumer advertising of pharmaceutical pills. So I think that that's definitely fostering this kind of distrust, of course, of not only big pharma, but it's collaboration with the establishment media, you know, political establishment, the lobbying, the fact that there's so many big pharma, you know, lobbyists on these mainstream media panels, et cetera, uh-huh. et cetera. So I think I it, I understand, of course, this distrust. And of course, the bad faith actors just exacerbates the problem because, as you mentioned, the data is the data. And for people, laymen like Mike and myself, who are not doctors, we're not healthcare professionals, we're not inside the pandemic. We, you know, we only just know anecdotally stuff that's going on. And so for us, of course, we look to people like you to interpret that data. And so it's a little hard for people who aren't in these fields of expertise to actually sift through all of the scientific studies. It's a lot Uh of information. We don't really understand what we're seeing. And so I think it's easy for people to misinterpret that data or cherry pick the data. Um, And if especially since the conventional wisdom has shifted very dramatically since the beginning. You know, Fauci was out there and I don't Uh know who the Fauci is of Canada, but maybe you guys can speak to that. And and if a similar kind of trend has been seen where, you know, don't buy masks and then masks work and then only N95 masks work and then, Uh you know, quarantine for 10 days and then the second Biden gets in, it's like, no, we're going to have the quarantine time to five. And then, of course, yep. with the several iterations of the variants, it seems like the transmissive, like the transmission rates have been dramatically different. Like everything almost goes out the window when we're looking at how is the data changing from variant to variant? And, and then, of course, as you mentioned, how can the scientific consensus adapt to that changing data as this virus continues to mutate? So, Shuva, let me throw this at yep. you, because for the longest time we were hearing over and over again, COVID is just like the flu. Uh I think that the people who were putting that out there knew that that wasn't true, like Trump. (laughs) But Uh that was a talking point that stuck. And two years into this, I mean, this has been two years ongoing into the pandemic. What do we know about COVID? And what does it really mean that this new disease is essentially permanently introduced into our society now? Yeah. And I mean, I think Fatima can also make a few comments about, you know, the um, impact of the different variants and, and what we do know about the disease process as it affects, you know, sort of um, the physiology and the functioning of an, of an individual. But I mean, broadly, I think that's an excellent question in that when, and I may even um, relate this a little bit to what you just talked about regarding um the slight politicization of the recommendations. And we might, you know, separately talk about, obviously, the impact of public health recommendations and regulations and mandates and all of that as a separate, you know, talking point. But I think it relates to this question in that um, the information that was transmitted to the public, whether it was about how to prevent the disease or what this virus represents as a threat or non-threat, however you want to come at it, um, has has shifted not because necessarily the science was recommending some of those statements be made, but because it was expedient for whomever was making those statements Mm -hmm. at the time. Um, And so there's always been a little bit of 
I would say, um, catching up or, or constantly being behind the eight ball in terms of what we really are finding out and knowing scientifically about this disease process. And I mean, like, let's just start with a really simple basic point, which is we keep talking about COVID and um, COVID as if that's the virus. And that that's actually not the virus. The virus is, is SARS-CoV-2, right? And so COVID is the disease, the acute disease process that you get when you catch SARS-CoV-2, right? And so some people catch SARS-CoV-2 and don't really have COVID much, right? They get, they, they get a SARS-CoV-2 test. It's positive, but they have a, a mild runny nose. And like they tell people, oh man, I have COVID. And technically, maybe that's what we would consider mild COVID if now that's the broader definition. But that flu-like or mild viral illness is not necessarily the same thing as the hospitalized, severe, ICU, bed-dependent type of disease course that we really were associating with full-blown COVID, right? And it's akin to, um, you know, we sort of have touched on this like in, in previous exchanges a little bit. Uh, it's sort of akin to the, the concept of being HIV positive, right? And then do you have AIDS or not, right? Like, you don't all have AIDS if you just get HIV positive. There are ways to not actually move on to getting AIDS, um, but you might still be exposed to the virus and you might carry that virus with you for life, right? So I think what we are seeing about uh, COVID now is that it is not actually just a respiratory virus, right? It is a, it is a cardiovascular and systemic virus that affects multiple organ systems. It goes way beyond the lungs and, you know, just our nasal passages and sinuses, uh, which is what we initially were thinking that maybe it was going to be limited to. But pretty early on, we started seeing problems like blood clots and uh, cardiac issues and uh, increased hypertension rates and neurological effects and uh, renal and kidney effects and digestive and gastrointestinal effects. So it's pretty systemic virus that impacts many, many different areas of the body in various ways. And the problem that we have now is that we, we're so early in the process of having this virus in, the, in our general population around the world that we don't really know exactly who reacts or what reason to this virus in certain ways. We can't really, we don't have a great, you know, excellent predictive apparatus to be able to say, well, when this person gets it, they're definitely going to have kidney failure. Like we, we just don't know that. We don't have any way to mark for that. We don't have tests that are going to prove it with absolute certainty. We can only use other evidence that we have from our, uh, you know, relatively, um, I would say, useful medical history of knowledge acquisition that's that's taken place over the past century or two about infectious diseases and the effects they have on, on different organ systems to be able to kind of gauge and estimate. But we're still only two years into this. And the fact that, you know, Abby, you mentioned that this is kind of a virus we have to accept is permanently part of our vocabulary and part of our, our life now uh, really means that we shouldn't be looking at it as this acute virus that people catch once or a couple times and then it's over like what we have as our modern day influenza type of thing that you know people get it, uh, influenza 
once a year or twice a year if they don't have vaccination or the immune system is, is not so great. Um, but it kind of runs a mild course because we really probably should be looking at SARS-CoV-2 in three phases, short-term, medium-term, and long-term. And the short-term stuff is, is the flu-like stuff that happens to someone who's otherwise healthy, has a very functional immune system, gets over it pretty well, or has been vaccinated and mounts a good immune response and has you know, a runny nose with COVID. And they say, you know, COVID didn't bother me. I'm super strong, you know. But then we don't really know what happens three or five years out in the medium term. Yet, we're not three years out. We, we don't have that evidence yet to be able to, to analyze. But we have some predictive aspects that are starting to emerge when we see pa patients who have had COVID early on in the, you know, the pandemic, early, early 2020. And two years in, they're still having side effects. They're still having neurological effects. They're having digestive problems or they have cardiovascular problems. And we're thinking, okay, these were otherwise healthy individuals, including pediatric patients, right? Like it was supposed to be milder in kids, but not necessarily because we still don't know exactly why some people are affected worse than others. And we have some kids who are now maybe going to have, you know, hypertension for the rest of their lives. Wow. They were healthy 10 year olds, right? And that's the long-term stuff that we have to wait a decade or so to be able to really get information about. So I think we just have to not think about it as the flu, like we know what the flu is, and just say maybe the acute phase can be similar to that, but the virus itself is is probably a, a, a bigger issue that we should be thinking about. So it's it's fair to say that COVID is quite serious based on what we know now. Mm -hmm. it, it, can, it absolutely can be. It, it shouldn't be downplayed as for sure uh, you're going to get it, and most most likely you're going to be okay. I think um, one of the reasons people have downplayed the seriousness or the gravity of the situation is because initially they thought that the mortality rate was going to be very high, potentially, because of either improper funding of health systems where people started having syst uh, symptoms and not getting treatment in time, or people were really going to crash and burn and, and, and fill up all the ICU beds like in Italy initially, where they were having people dying at home and then no one going to pick up the bodies because like everyone was on quarantine and lockdown. And, and that turned out to not be the case, right? Quite that bad. The ICU is still filled up, but thanks to modern medicine, a lot of people have, have also been able to make it out of the ICU. But unfortunately, that because the mortality rate is not as high as maybe initially thought does not mean that it's still not higher than a lot of other viruses that should have, you know, sort of been considered quite serious too. So yeah, I think I think it's a really good point that we've kind of considered this as moderately important when probably it's quite significant. Yes. And Fatima, I wanted to get to this first big response that uh, is popular uh, to people who are quote unquote, countering the COVID narrative. Um, and that's that the number of deaths is completely inflated, not by a little, but by a lot. And this issue of any time the, the death uh, toll is reported or there's, uh, you know, a, one of these horrific stories of, you know, here in Los Angeles County, there's been like two infants who have died of COVID just within the past month. Um, and that's just here in our area. Uh, but the response is always, did they die from COVID or with COVID? And this idea that 
all of these, you know, huge numbers of deaths, shocking numbers of deaths, uh, you can't really trust them because they're just counting everyone who tests positive for COVID. If they die, uh, they are counted as a COVID death uh, because it's good for business if people think that there's more people dying of COVID. So, Fatima, what is your response to this for or with COVID accusation? Um, In your professional opinion, how seriously should people take this? Well, first of all, when when I'm uh, debunking um, any misinformation, I I want to um, always acknowledge um, the anxiety underlying anxieties uh, that might have given rise to uh, such a misinformation. This what you mentioned is indeed a misinformation, or should I say disinformation perpetuated purposefully. Um, but you know the. The way the um, the lockdowns, the um, overflowing of the hospitals, have affected the society. um, So I understand those are some of the anxieties that feed into wanting that this desire to to want to downplay what's happening, to to want to downplay any statistics that are presented and cast doubt on it, because it's uh, for most of us. Uh, we haven't dealt with such a large-scale crisis, so it's it's. Uh, there are times that it's hard for us to compute it and and relate to it. So uh, the one of the um, best available heuristics is to cast doubt on it and and want to question its validity. Um, most people haven't seen what the certificates look like and and um, what a very rigorous and involved process it is to fill out a death certificate. Uh, being in medical school, I just had the privilege of finishing a module on how to fill out death certificates alone. It's, uh, as I said, it's it's quite rigorous and it's not something that one can easily forge or or write down what um, you whatever you think you should put down. There are very, very strict and specific guidelines for each state, um, and these are audited very frequently. Um, and so there are there are very, uh, at least at a local level, there are um, rigorous uh, processes in place to make sure that people don't put um, false information on the certificates and people lose licenses. If you lose your license to practice, if you do indeed put uh, false information on that certificate. Um, when we, so when you want to put the cause of death on a certificate, you got about four spots. And this is, um, I'm going by what, what Americans use. And, and this is a standard um, basically type of death certificate used in all states. Um, across the U.S., uh, you put in one of the first thing you put in uh, down is the major underlying uh, condition, the the thing that that person um, had that sort of cascaded the, the original disease or condition they had. So I can give you a case example. For instance, let's say you we had a death in the hospital. Uh, it was in a patient who originally was diagnosed with um, liver cancer, they go through chemotherapy. Um, they ended up developing, let's say, thrombosis, venous thrombosis, blood clots in their thigh. 
and they're hospitalized. About three days later, they get a pulmonary embolism, blood clot in their lungs, and um, and then they die of respiratory arrest. So I've mentioned quite a few things. I mentioned cancer, liver cancer. I mentioned uh, blood clot in their thigh. I mentioned a pulmonary embolism, and then respiratory arrest. So which one of these do you put? On a death certificate and the answer is so that that I think that might help people figure out the width and the four this person when they came to that when they were hospitalized um, they came with with cancer so we put that's one of the things the items that we put on the death certificate but the actual cause of death what what caused their immediate death wasn't necessarily the cancer it was the pulmonary embolism. It was that, that final clot that was detected in their lung and led to respiratory arrest. And so these death, death certificates are coded, uh, like I said, very uniformly across the board um, and uh, audited very uniformly across the board. Um, and we have ways of calculating, okay, what are the percentages of people who have come in with liver cancers? What are the percentage of people who have come in with liver cancers but died of a car accident, a pulmonary embolism? Um, there is a little bit of a lack of clarity right now in the way uh, the data are reported, just because we are still in the middle of a crisis and, and people are trying to figure out uh, what are the best ways of reporting? But but I want to emphasize that there isn't a sort of a grand conspiracy going on to conflate uh, the num numbers of death. Um, the, the people who are dying um, in hospitals, if they have underlying condition, COVID, we know COVID exacerbates your underlying condition. It 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 makes it a lot worse if you have COPD, if you have um, renal dysfunction. So if you come in because your kidneys have failed, but the cause of it is because you got infected, had you not been infected, you would have had another 10 good years and you would have lived another 10 years. Your cause of death is the infection. It's the, the complication arising from the infection. I hope that answers the question. Sorry if I... It, it absolutely does. And before you jump in there, Juvo, I wanted to just add a comment and provide a, a little bit more context for what I'm seeing being discussed um, from some of these websites and a lot of people who we've been talking to over the last couple of weeks. Because I think what you just said is 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 the crux of everything. Um, with versus from... But what are we actually talking about here? Because if we're talking about comorbidities or pre-existing conditions, I'm not sure how many Canadians, but th that's that's a third of this country in America. Mm -hmm. I mean, 100 million people have vulnerabilities that will be greatly exacerbated by COVID. So, for example, I saw you know a clip circulating from Nigel Farage from the UK mm -hmm. saying that uh, there was this huge revelatory thing where they were like, oh, my God, we did our own freedom of, freedom of information request. And we found out this extremely startling fact that the National Health Service said, quote, there's only 17,000 deaths were from COVID alone. 
And so that was this huge thing circulating where it was like this big gotcha, like, oh, my God, they lied about the deaths. They fear mongered about how many people were dying. But it's like, well, that just means that the other, you know, huge death toll that's lumped into that is because people who had comorbidities or vulnerabilities mm-hmm. that they would not have died if yep. they hadn't contracted COVID. So I, I feel like there's this disconnect of do people understand that? You know, I'm, I'm sure that you understand these lives have equal amount of value and that these people would not have died. Exactly. You know, if, if you have diabetes, if you're obese, all of these things, it doesn't just necessarily doesn't just necessarily mean it's a death sentence unless you contract COVID. And I think a thing that's kind of um, making this issue very confusing for people is the fact that you have Biden himself and Fauci actually going out there and saying, yeah, we actually need to be more accurate in our reporting. We need to go back and even recount some of the tolls and tallies coming from the hospitals to actually specify with or from. Fauci even said, yeah, um, you know, everyone who's entered into the hospital and admitted is tested. They're tested. And so, you know, and then I saw there's this other video of a woman circulating around. I don't I'm not sure exactly who she is, but I think she's some sort of healthcare professional here in the U.S., And she's basically saying, if you come into hospice and you die with a COVID positive diagnosis, they count that as a COVID death. And then I see this other article. Sorry to keep adding on to this, but this is all very important Uh uh to, you know, to understand where this argument's coming from of of an article saying a guy who got hit by a, a motorcycle and that that was counted as a COVID death because he was COVID positive at the time of his death. And so I've seen people say, you know, extrapolate this and multiply this by a million. And that's why we're seeing the million COVID Mm -hmm. deaths. So I I know I just threw a lot at you, Shuvo, but I feel like this is really like a really, really crucial point here. It really is. It really is. I fully agree with you. And I mean, it's interesting because I I don't even want to get into, you know, some of the, the tangential things that can come out of what you had just mentioned, because there is a certain piece of me that wonders about why uh, some of the people in, you know, sort of making a public, who have a public face uh, like Fauci uh, are, are talking about this in, in a way that does not add or help the debate, right? They're, they're just basically giving more, like more space perhaps, and, and they're giving oxygen to this possibility that there's something wrong, you know, going on. There's like this shady stuff happening, you know, and on a, on a, on a uh, municipal level, on a state legislative level, on a governmental level, on a health, within health systems, in hospitals, um, in the coroner's offices, you know. But, the, you know, it's really important to be able to say one thing first and foremost, which is, uh, there is no, and Fatima and I were just talking about this yesterday, there is no global network that's easily accessible where all the health systems across different jurisdictions and countries can suddenly tap into each other's data and know exactly what's be- being recorded in what way. Each jurisdiction has their own set of rules and regulations. And as Fatima just explained, they're pretty rigorous and they're pretty tight, um, you know, in and of themselves. And there's there are consequences to being um, somebody who consistently and maybe in a almost in a malevolent way manipulates the data or changes things in a way that that falsifies information. And it's, and it's really, really hard 
have thousands upon thousands of different uh, individuals who are all participating in this grand global scheme to inflate numbers. So that's that's really important first and foremost. And then secondly, um, going back to what you just said, Abby, it's you know ultimately the distinction of from versus with isn't even that important when you have to face the consequences of people who are dying who would not have died at this moment in time because the pandemic is happening. It is not necessarily a direct consequence of the you know, infiltration of viral infection in a vital organ that caused their death, but it's because their diabetes was exacerbated and they could not afford their medications and they were not able to control and manage it in a healthy way that they were able to sort of kind of balance moderately well without this infection on board. And as soon as that extra thing tipped them over the edge, they died prematurely. And like Fatima said, maybe they would have five years or 10 years or 20 years or maybe 40 years more to live. And that premature death rate is really, that's really what we should be thinking about. And, and, and the morbidity, right? And it's like, it's not just about death. Like, it's not about just inflating the numbers of people dying because we're really, really focused on, like, who dies from COVID and who doesn't die from COVID. And, you know, 10 years out, we're going to know how many people actually died because of this pandemic because they don't need to die the day they got sick or two weeks after they got sick. They just might die five years after they got sick because they developed, you know, myocarditis and their heart got weaker. And then in their 30s, they had a heart attack and died which they would never have had had they not had COVID, right? And so we're, we're not even there. Like we, the, the numbers are probably going to be significantly greater without needing to ever really talk about what's happening in um, you know, the coroner's offices on death certificates right now. So I think it's, you know, and one more point I make is, is just going back to the example of HIV again, right? So when, when somebody has HIV and develops AIDS, it's not often or very, very much, you know, the case that the actual virus itself caused death. It's some secondary infection that's happened, which they never would have caught and never would have worsened that fast had they not acquired HIV, right? So you can call that an HIV death, even though they might have just died of meningitis, right? Because they got, you know, a bacterial infection and their immune system just wasn't good enough to fight it off, which if they didn't have HIV, they would never have got. So I, I think we, we just got to rethink the definitions and this concept because that is, that's actually not, it's almost a moot point because it's not a global conspiracy by health professionals or even those who are working with the government as health professionals to inflate those numbers. That's not the place where the, any, anyone's getting an advantage by making this bigger than it needs to be. It's probably slightly underreported right. if, if we really are being honest about it. And there are other individuals, you know, the Nigel Farages of the world, if it was expedient for them to inflate these numbers, like he, he would say, yeah, like, look, look at how many people are dying of this. And look, look how many, look how many Brits have been, you know, killed by, you know, Muslims who've invaded our shores, you know, and he'll in, in, inflate those numbers. But then he will try to underreport numbers on something like this because it's expedient for him to do so with, with whoever his supporters are um, or 
because it's making an argument that he wants to make. But, you know, going back to what Fatima said, the data are the data, right? Like the, the reality, the numbers are just the numbers. Like nobody's really like, like fine tuning them that closely. It's just not possible. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's two things for me that I think really blow the for and with uh, thing out of the water. One is that, you know, there is just a study done uh, in the United States on excess mortality since the pandemic began. And, you know, excess mortality being, of course, uh, you can expect a certain number of deaths every year from cancer, heart disease, accidents, drug overdose, things like that. Excess mortality in the U.S. since the pandemic began is one million deaths, which is much more than the uh, COVID death toll. At, at w- whether or not those are definitely not all COVID deaths, but speaks to the fact that so many people are overwhelming the healthcare system that a lot of people who didn't have COVID or die of COVID still died because of the Mm. increased strain on the healthcare system. So the excess mortality lines up completely with the idea that a massive number of people in the U.S. and everywhere, the world uh, excess mortality is actually four times the number of official COVID deaths globally. But the other Mm -hmm. thing that blows the from and with out of the water for me is that when you actually look at the death toll by vaccination status, in the U.S. in particular, but this is true of every country that you look, um, the deaths are much, much more for people who are unvaccinated. And when you're talking about populations in these countries where most people are vaccinated, you would think that if anyone with COVID dies and is counted as a COVID death, that would actually be inflating the number of people who are vaccinated who are dying. And you wouldn't have this huge gap between unvaccinated people and vaccinated people uh, if most are vaccinated, yet most of the deaths are unvaccinated. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about vaccines, but I just wanted to add on to your excellent point, Shuvo, because and Fatima, because it's it's just so interesting because doctors take a Hippocratic oath like you guys take your job very seriously. And it it is very hard to imagine the entire medical community getting together to essentially lie because we're not just talking about politicians. We're not just talking about someone who like owns a hot, like a big business owner who owns some sort of like private hospital. Like this is tens of thousands, millions, I mean, of doctors around the world who have acknowledged this reality. Tens of thousands of doctors here in the U.S. who are reporting these things, filling out the death certificates. So it it is just, it's almost just like, it's just like weird when people tell I've had people mm-hmm. tell me this, that this is the protocol. Like, don't I know this is the protocol for every doctor to just say someone died from covid to get kickbacks from the hospital? Like, I don't even know what that yes. means in terms of like insurance <laughs> right. kickbacks. It's just it's right. so strange because it's like I don't think that doctors would just be like, yeah, we're going to throw all of our training out the window and just be like, well, this is the new protocol. Like if someone just is diagnosed with COVID and they get hit by a car, I'm just going to like write it in as a COVID death. Like that's kind of hard to imagine. Mm-hmm. But, it is. And, and, and there's like and there's absolutely no advantage. And, you know, like the team and I were just talking about this yesterday as well, that there is no advantage gained so that we're not getting additional money by claiming a different cause of death. Like there's no advantage, right? So that's that's really, really important point to just keep highlighting because like there's no way, like we we are just kind of doing our thing and just kind of like, you know, flowing with the, the, the river as it were, um, that's that's got its own current. And there's just no way for us to swim that far upstream and, and be with, you know, these people with, you know, really deep pockets that are lobbying in Washington, D.C. and in Ottawa, um, you know, or in London, um, stating the certain things need to happen or not happen and, and getting money for it. It's like we, we're not 
getting any advantage for that. If I could add uh, just a quick couple of points. So one is, you know, uh, even though we have been as healthcare professionals, we've been overwhelmed at the past two years, just completely burnt out. Filling out a death certificate, most people don't get the, the humbling experience and the privilege. And in a way, it's a privilege to fill out a death certificate because you get to sit down for a few minutes and ponder on the things that this person for whom you're, you're uh, filling the certificate out has gone through, what their experiences might have been like. It's a very humbling experience. And no matter how many you fill out in a day or in a week or in a month, each one is a sacred one. Each one comes with a toll for the clinician who is filling it out, for the uh, people who have to hand that out to the mortuary people or the family member. Uh, so it's not it's not something we take easily. And most people are, are honest, you know, <laughs> I just want to put that out. The second thing is, um, and it some, somewhat relates to what we were talking about earlier in terms of what we have learned about the, the virus. You know, we have, uh, there are there are a lot of um, initiatives going on to try and better map the host response, host being us, our genomic response, because our immune system, the way we, we fight, not just this virus, but any pathogens, is dictated by our genetics. And um, there are so many variations in a population. We, we are not aware, we, we haven't mapped all of it. We are not aware of it. And, and of course, this is a new pathogen. It's changing our, our genomic elements in ways that it hasn't been challenged before. And being human equals to having an underlying condition. I, I want to highlight and underline that you're a human being. It means you have some sort of an underlying condition. So the statistics that you get in terms of certain percentage of Americans having underlying condition, those are the people who have been diagnosed, who've, who've had um, symptoms bother them enough uh, to have gone through a health system, who were able to afford to go through the health system to be diagnosed and, and be aware of their diagnosis. But there are so many um, silent conditions, there are so many silent underlying conditions that um, either people haven't diagnosed, been diagnosed with or we are not fully aware of their extent. So you could be totally okay uh, under normal circumstances, your kidneys, your lung, your immune cells, even they function really uh, well your normal circumstances or even when you have just a minor cold but when put under stress and and unique and new stress like what we are going through right now with this particular virus which is a very vicious virus um then that's when your underlying conditions come out that's when the, those few um genetic variations that you've you carry uh, that was handed down to you from your ancestors, or or they have, they might be, there could be spontaneous mutations. Uh, that that's when those things come out, and and you see this diversity of range of symptoms and pathologies in people. And and um, we're trying to map that. We're trying to understand that. But I want to put this out there that you don't know what you have 
you don't know what kind of underlying condition, you don't know what kind of genetic variations that you have that can affect the way you respond to this virus. It could be a, we've seen a lot of very young and healthy people die of this virus. Uh, and many of them didn't have any significant underlying condition. And also that, I think this also ties into the idea that why vaccine acquired immunity is much better, much better than infection acquired immunity. You just said so many important things there. Um, just the fact that we often talk about this pandemic in terms of statistics, and it's kind of a dehumanizing way to talk about such a profound loss of life, a profound loss for communities, especially minority communities here, if we're looking at people who are uninsured, you know, predominantly poor, low income, obviously, I mean, who can't afford to pay such a ridiculous amount on their health insurance every month. So to hear the humanization of of just these victims. I mean, the fact that you sit down and write a death certificate and have that moment of silence where essentially grieving the loss of, of someone that you were connected to because you were treating them or are working where they passed. And it's just it's just a really important thing to point out. Like none of this is taken lightly. All of these lives have value. It doesn't matter if you have a pre-existing condition that you know about or not. That's what makes the idea of kind of letting this rip with no public health measures at all problematic because we, for the simple fact that we do not know who is vulnerable and who is not. That's right. And I want to jump into vaccines because you left it at a perfect point. This is this is where the most heated debate is now. You know, and I will say wrongly that, um, you know, I went into this, of course, coupled with this huge kind of pressure campaign. You know, everyone was just very desperate to get this over with. The vaccines came out here in the U.S., of course, and I think Canada is also using the predominantly the Pfizer and Moderna mRNA vaccine, which is a new yeah. groundbreaking technology. Um, the United States as well as Europe and Israel are also using these predominant vaccines. I'm not sure how much the J&J, the Johnson, Johnson & Johnson vaccine is being used, which to the best of my knowledge is more of like the old school variant, so not the new mRNA technology. So mm -hmm. Operation Warp Speed expedited this mRNA technology. It kind of bypassed the more stringent, you know, years-long trials that we usually see with humans. Fatima, let's talk about the science and and um genetics i guess behind this because you know i've heard everything from this is a gene altering vaccine to it's simply experimental and we're all the guinea pigs because we are the test subjects the trials weren't sufficient and then you know and then i think we can go into the broader conversation about just the efficiency and efficacy of the vaccine in terms of transmission and how it has mutated and adapted variant to variant, but I guess let's start there about why should we trust the mRNA technology? Would you consider it an experimental technology? And were you, um, you know, did you did you feel like it was a sufficient amount of data and trials going into this to kind of unleash this on the public? That's a very good question. I'm so glad that you asked. <laughs> you asked it. 
Um, one thing I want to say, you had mentioned earlier that this is a new technology. I want to, I would like to correct that respectfully. It is not a new technology. Um, mRNA uh, delivery systems are using mRNA as um, a, a therapeutic uh, tool has been around longer than I have been alive. So, so there is, we have done a lot of research that these vaccines are built on the shoulders of many, 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 many years of data and experiment. Um, and and uh, we started the conversation about how consensus is formed. And I mentioned that this, the process of science is iterative and you build on and you build on and you build on. And that's how um, all the developments or the new cool things um, are, are being discovered. All the things that we hope can ch save our planet, all the things that we hope can can be good to for us, but also our ecosystem. So the, the mRNA technology has been around. It's been used since um, around the 80s um, to uh, as a method to basically target uh, different diseases and, and help address different diseases. But let's take it back to the basic. mRNA um, is a molecule that is naturally occurring. We have it in ourselves. Everybody, every um, basically organism that has um, a genome will have some sort of an mRNA molecule in their system. It's it's vital for life, um, but it's it's also very short lived. It's very delicate, um, and because of that, all these years, decades of work that were that were going into studying and and trying to use it to address very devastating genetic disorders, uh, genetic disorders that um, uh, basically are, feet, are fatal for very young children. Um, because of that delic delicateness that the mRNA has, it's very sensitive. Um, it, it requires very like tender loving care, the environment for it, it needs to be right, otherwise it will disintegrate. It took a long time for us to basically um, come up, develop technologies and reagents and environments, learn more about the environments that is conducive for its survival so that it can do the work that it does and then disappear. Um, so the part that, that took a little longer is figuring out, tweaking out the conditions for it and, and basically making it um, to this point where it's stable. We can inject it to people safely. It will deliver. It's like a, a mailman or mail person. It's it's going to come deliver the mail or the instruction to the rest of the elements in your cells and then disappear, go away. Uh, the same way that your own endogenous, the, the mRNA that your own body produces, uh, goes away um, and and disappears. So. There's nothing experimental about it. It's a proven and tested method. It's it's very safe. It's actually one of the cleanest, safest um, compounds, vaccine compounds that we have uh, created in in a long time. Sorry if I went on a tangent, but uh, I hope that answered at least part of your question. And I forgot what was the rest of it. <laughs> oh no, I'm very happy that you discussed what mRNA is because I 
completely ignorant and I think most people are and so it 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 does sound scary because at the beginning you know the the word experimental was being thrown around a lot and I I think that a lot of people were very hesitant you know I definitely wasn't jumping first in line to to get the vaccine just because I didn't know anything about it I was wanting to appease of course my family and you know I knew a lot of people who got it and nothing you know we kind of leapt over that first kind of wave of uncertainty about getting this quote-unquote new experimental vaccine I feel much more comfortable you know of course a year later Um, but I think that it was oversold at least I feel like peripherally like just kind of tuning into the news about at the beginning I think the the overselling of the vaccine to make everyone think that this was it you know and the vaccine was going to come out and we were all just going to get vaccinated and then we can just move on with our lives and I don't know if you guys feel similarly or if you just kind of knew from the beginning that no that's not how this vaccine is going to work because I even see you know they're suggesting changing the definition of a vaccine to fit this vaccine because it doesn't eradicate COVID and then I just see I mean this is the biggest talking point that I see today is like oh you got COVID and you were vaccinated so what's the point of the vaccine so it's that kind of thing like base Mm -hmm. level the vaccine doesn't prevent transmission therefore it's useless but the rest of my question was just kind of like the the efficacy of the vaccine and like the science behind it. So I feel like you you addressed that. But if you wanted to add on to, you know, to anything else that I said, go ahead. Yes, actually. So thank you. That um, the point about um, the, the changing the definition or the, um, whether this was um, hyped up, um, I have to say we all like the the expert community, the scientific community, we knew what this vaccine is and what it can do and what it can't do. Unfortunately, the hype was done by a lot of the media. <laughs> we didn't we didn't create the hype. We didn't overpromise what the vaccine was gonna do. We were very honest and the and the trials they're very clear that the the way that uh, the trial is designed, you you set a number of objectives for yourself. You say, okay, I want, um, I have this compound. What do I want it to achieve? What are the things that I'm going to look for for it to tell me have I achieved this or have I I've failed in achieving it? So we call those uh, primary objectives, secondary objectives. Um, and so, so for the mRNA vaccines, both Pfizer and Moderna, the primary objective was prevention of disease, hospitalization, and then death. And then the secondary objectives, exploratory objectives, were can we see differences in, in transmissibility? Do we see it affect uh, transmission or viral load? Um, science of vaccinology has been around for a very, very, very long time. Uh, we know, and also immunology too. I mean, we know there are a lot of unknowns about this virus, but there are a lot. There is a lot we know about our own immune system and how it functions. And it's it's such a beautiful thousand piece uh, orchestra. It's it's really, really one of the coolest topics out there. Um, we know that when you give a subcutaneous injection uh, uh, vaccine, you're not going to get 
the type of immunity, the IgA molecules, uh, the mucosal molecules, uh, antibodies that you need to protect um, from transmission. When you inject, when you have a subcutaneous uh, vaccine, that's going to help your body to produce antibodies that float in your system, they're in your bloodstream, and, and they protect your cells mm -hmm. from infection. The type of vaccine that uh, protects against infection and transmission, that's a mucosal type of vaccine. Mm -hmm. It primes, you know, the nasal spray vaccines. It's a type of vaccine that basically um, helps the cells in your nose, your mouth, your all your mucosal membranes to produce the IgA, it's a different type of antibodies, to basically stop the transmission death at its point of entry. And so that was never uh, part of the trials. Uh, that was never promised by any scientist that that's what, what's going to do. We were all very pleasantly surprised to learn when, when, when the data came in for the secondary objectives, uh, looking at the transmission, uh, transmission and the redu reduction virals, we were all very pleasantly surprised. But we were we were surprised that it actually helps uh, reduce uh, viral load in people who uh, get infected. Uh, but uh, I, I want to emphasize the primary objective of these vaccines and and the way they function really. Like you can't you can you can't manipulate the biology. Uh, I mean, you can, but you're not in this case. But uh, these vaccines aren't designed, they cannot prevent infection. They're meant to protect your body, your organs from getting sick. They're meant to prevent you from ending up in hospital and severely sick. And they're doing a superb job of doing that. Yes. I mean, for me, kind of digging more into this stuff, I was uh, I didn't know that there was a big difference between infection and disease and the, uh, you know, the Moderna, the Pfizer vaccines, others around the world. They're uh, they are very effective at preventing disease, but uh, still people call them leaky vaccines because they do not fully protect against infection while they're highly effective against preventing disease. And, you know, I understand that there's uh, frustration because people were, you know, I thought that once the vaccine was here, that was the end of COVID. As a new virus that is mutating and changing, you know, we we don't we don't really decide when when that changes. It's it's a a constant flowing process. Um, there were a couple things uh, that I wanted to ask. You know, I, I think mainly is what do we know now since the vaccine has been around about its effectiveness, the difference in death rate for vaccinated and unvaccinated. And there's a, a couple things going around that I wanted you to address also. Um, just really quickly, the one I'll say is that uh, there's, a, I think, maybe one of the more uh, pernicious uh, lies going around is this thing that natural immunity is more effective than vaccination fighting COVID. Um, people always leave out of that that, you know, uh, prior infection and vaccination is uh, much more effective than not than uh, natural immunity from prior infection alone. Um, but, you know, I think the the real kind of evil thing about spreading that is to get natural immunity, you have to first get COVID, which can kill you or cause serious long-term health effects. So this idea that, you know, just getting COVID is better protection against COVID than the vaccine is a uh 
uh, quite bad. Um, but I wanted to ask you about the what we know in the death rate of death and hospitalization for vaccinated, unvaccinated people. Um, I think one of the things that I've heard is, of course, you will say that the you're way more likely to die if you are unvaccinated. But there's this accusation going around that you are actually not counted as vaccinated if you uh, are within 14 days from your uh, second shot. I don't know if you've heard this, but basically the assertion is that the vaccine actually lowers your immunity for two weeks after you get it. So the high number of unvaccinated deaths is actually people who got vaccinated and are in this two-week window of lowered immunity, um, basically meaning that they died because they got the vaccine and it weakened their immune system where they would have survived uh, if they had just gotten COVID without the lowered immune system from the vaccine. And so I wanted to ask whoever wants to answer, um, what about these things that are being thrown around? And also, what do we really know about the effectiveness of the vaccine at preventing death and serious illness? Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to let Fatima as the vaccine, well, more of a vaccine expert, you know, answer uh, those questions a bit more in detail. But I would just say that right off the bat, you know, there is a there's a misunderstanding about, you know, what happens after you get vaccinated. If you're thinking that there's a two-week window post-vaccination where your immune system is actually not working properly. That's just a, an, uh, an, a misunderstanding of, of the basic biology of our immune systems. So, I mean, I think Fatima can, can speak more eloquently specifically to those things. And I'll just uh, mention now that I want to circle back after that to uh, maybe the experience that I had as well uh, in my own life in thinking about the vaccine before receiving it, before deciding that I was going to get it. So I, I think it's important for people to understand that there's a there's a thinking process that goes through, even for healthcare professionals, it's not just a blind, um, okay, okay, this seems cool, I'm just going to try it. There's a process of analysis and thinking through that leads to our decision making. And part of that is because we are able to look at, at the data or studies in a critical thinking way, and in a way that we are able to critically analyze the literature um, and the evidence that's presented to us that isn't as easily accessible to the lay public. And there, and at the same time, we might have some of the same fears or concerns or worries, um, and we just look for the, the adequate and um, most appropriate ways to answer those questions. And then we're able to, that, to transmit that information and that experience to those who don't have the background in science or who are not in healthcare or are not physicians. And hopefully that helps, you know, sort of promote the idea that we did our homework before making some of these statements as well. So maybe we'll just come circling back to that, but I think Fatima can, can speak to those two questions about that 14 day lowered immunity period and, you know, what actually happens, you know, with the vaccines and, and, and the efficacy of these vaccines. So I want to take it back to what you said about like what we were talking about, uh, the um, vaccine acquired immunity versus infection acquired immunity and one being superior to to other. Um, and these are these are conversations that I've been having for long before the pandemic started with with um, vaccine hesitant parents and trying to help them appreciate um, the fact that vaccine acquired immunity is natural and is far, 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 far less risky than infection acquired immunity, because 
when it comes to health decisions, just like any other decisions that you make in life, um, you're trying to balance risks and benefit. And, and that's what most people think of when they're thinking about, should I get vaccinated or should I just not get vaccinated? Uh, you're trying to, to figure out what are the risks, what are the benefits, and and how do I, what decision do I make to maximize that? When, and I like to use a few analogies here. Um, that infection-generated immunity, think of it as you're trying to test the fire alarm system in your house. And with the infection, the way you're, you're going about testing that fire alarm system and fire alarm system is, here is um, synonymous to your immune system, you're setting your couch on fire. You've set your couch <laughs> on fire to see the alarm, if whether the alarm goes on. <laughs> that fire can get out of place. If you have sprinklers, the waters could you know, start uh, going off and you're, before you know it, your house is flooded. But you know the alarm system is working. However, if vaccine-acquired immunity, when you when you want to um, compare it, um, it's like testing your your fire alarm system with you know one of those spray can thingies they they spray against <laughs> right. the, the fire alarm, and it beeps and it tells you I'm functioning. I know I know what look to look for. If I detect smoke, I'm gonna beep for you. Which one do you think is less risky? The, the exposing yourself to the possibility of a fire in your body in multiple organ systems, a cytokine storm, which was like, you know, the sprinklers going off, or just exposing to yourself to a tiny little bit of um, pathogen, the antigen, and teaching your body how to, to basically tackle it and fight it. The other thing about the the vaccine-acquired immunity and, and infection-acquired immunity is that um, with infection-acquired immunity, the level of immunity that you, you acquire after being exposed to a pathogen, not just this virus, any virus or bacteria, or, um, it depends on how exposed, like how much of that pathogen you were exposed to. If you were exposed to a lot of it, and and how well, how much, how will your body respond? Did you respond? Did you get really sick? Did your body produce a lot of antibodies when when they were exposed to that particular pathogen? So it's not uniform, and and you can see that really in the in the population when you look at different people getting infected with with uh, SARS-CoV-2 there is a range of symptoms, right? You see some people are asymptomatic, some people have sniffles, some people get really, really sick and end up in hospital. And so there you, you'll have this variation in the levels of immunity that is being generated and it's not standard. Whereas with vaccines, you've standardized it. Now there is, with, um, I'm a geneticist, so I have to, to Put it in context a little bit and qualify it with, with, um, with uh, a little more information. Because of there is genetic variation in all of us, not everybody, of course, responds to the vaccines the same way as, you know, your neighbor would, would respond. But overall, it's a lot more standard than uh, infection is. And an analogy to help people appreciate that is infection, acquired immunity is like giving different study materials to different students 
for the same test. Some of the students have gotten hundreds of pages of material to study. Some have gotten five. And one poor little guy has gotten a blank page. There's nothing written on it, but they're all going to be exposed to the same test. Not all of them are going to pass it. If a vaccine acquired immunity, on the other hand, it's like, you know, you've you've given everybody, all the students in your class, the same study material. They're all going to go study it and write the same test. Now, some of them might not do as well in the test and get 100%. Some of them will barely pass and some of them will fail. But at, at least you have standardized the amount of protection, the amount of preparation that you have given them. And do we do we actually know the rates of effectiveness in terms of mitigation against severe illness and death? It's a high, it's like in the um, protection against death for various vaccines and various combinations and various doses is above 85%. You're protected against, against death. Against disease, it changes a little bit because you have um, all those underlying known or unknown conditions in each person that you don't know what's going on. And of course, you have the challenges of um, variants of concern and, and whatnot. But the vaccines are doing a very superb job of protecting against death. Absolutely. And and on, on the issue of the pandemic of unvaccinated, I want to say I, I do not like that term. Mm. Um, I've uh, I do a lot of vaccine outreach, particularly to, you know, my own people, uh, people who are racialized, uh, members of marginalized communities. Um, not everybody who is unvaccinated, like we, it, it, it sort of demonizes everybody who is unvaccinated. We, right now we have children under five who, is un, who are unvaccinated due to no, you know, they have no choice in it, but they're real, we are waiting for approval. We have people who um, are, you know, going through very rigorous cancer treatments and, and are really, really sick and they can't be vaccinated. And we have people who have legitimate historic reasons for mistrust. We have um, First Nations here and Native Americans uh, in the States. We have the Black community, the, the um, Asian community, a lot of like majority of the racialist communities who have been uh, sort of like their rights have been trampled upon uh, for decades by by uh, medicine, by medical professionals, by by uh, governments and, and authorities. They have very good valid reasons for uh, the mistrust that they, they are experiencing. And so I don't like to put everybody under the same umbrella and, and call it the pandemic of the unvaccinated. It's um, it's a pandemic of let's call it mismanagement, misinformation, and to some extent, bad luck. I'm really happy that you talked about vaccine hesitancy because I think it's very, very important to give this dialogue the space, like, I mean, the oxygen that it needs because here in the U.S., um, just looking at, you know, the news day to day, the the constant two minutes hate, you know, of, of just a random conservative who died and happened to be unvaccinated. And it's like, you know, takes up the entire page of Daily Beast, like just mocking this person being like, well, they shouldn't have been you should have been vaccinated. And it's like there are so many nuances to this as you 
quite clearly um, alluded to, you know, the fact that there's minority communities who've been experimented upon by this government. It's like, I totally get (laughs) the profound distrust in established institutions that are um, peddling a lot of this. And so it is very important to not demonize huge swaths of people and really understand where this mentality is coming from, you know? And I wanted to just get this out of the way because this is, of course, a huge facet um, that feeds into the hesitancy. A huge aspect of this is vaccine injuries. Um, And it's not just the claim that, you know, the vaccine's killing people, which, you know, if you look at somewhere like VAERS, the vaccine database, or someone like Tucker Carlson on Fox News, who are making the claim that the vaccine has basically killed three to 4,000 people in the U.S., and then you have people going out there and claiming, you know, the vaccine, like Mike said, is actually causing people to catch and die die from COVID because it's weakening your immune system. The vaccine kills more people than COVID's killing. I've seen people justify the excess death toll as actually saying that's vaccine injuries. Um, The vaccine injuries could be 40-fold higher than what's being reported on VAERS. There's so much stuff flying around. Um, To me, I feel like we know the short-term side effects because we've seen them all be reported. I mean, that that's one of the good things about being inundated with big pharma propaganda on a daily basis. It's like 99% of this is side effects. It's like you can't really hide side effects because of the mass reporting. So I feel like the myocarditis we knew right away. There's reports of hearing loss. I don't know how true that is or if it's just statistical probabilities of, you know, that just happening among people who are reporting that. Then, of course, there's the ovulation changes, you know, menstrual period maybe being delayed or different after the vaccine. So these are very serious things. And, you know, to me, I feel like we need to also give that space and discuss these openly and transparently because there's a lot of ridiculing and basically shutting down anyone who talks about vaccine side effects But to me, that just adds legitimacy to the vaccine hesitancy when you're like advocating just banning or purging someone who's asking questions or discussing some of these things. So if there's anything you want to say to that and then Shuvo, I do want you to follow up with your personal story about about the vaccine. Absolutely. You know, anything. um, This is how I like to communicate in terms of vaccine, whether it's covid vaccine or any other vaccine or in fact, any other medicine that uh, medicine or medical intervention um, that uh, we recommend to people. Anything that you 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 use, uh, in fact, any action you take in, in your life has consequences. It, it could have good consequences or bad consequences. Um, it's absolutely okay. it's it's a legitimate anxiety. It's a legitimate question. Most people are not, uh, and in fact, there are a lot of scientists who, um, you know, this is not their field of expertise, their area of expertise, and they have questions and they don't quite understand how the mRNA is being metabolized in the body, what what pathways are activated. It is under, uh, it is 100% okay for people to have questions. It is okay to be afraid. Um, and worried and, and think about how is it going to affect me? Is it going to sterilize me? And, and will I be able to uh, conceive? Um, however, I also want to say, you know, we are in the middle of an infodemic. 
information is much more, which means information is just much more readily available uh, than any other time. However, none of it, like a lot of it is not high quality information. And for the most part, the public does not have the background and the expertise to be able to sift through and figure out uh, this data was created um, legitimately or is it falsified or uh, and, and what does it mean even if it's legitimate what does it mean um, so vaccines just like and, and this vaccine is just like any other medication there they could have side effects but the cool part about it is that we know what those side effects are side effects associated with the vaccines have been studied for a long time because vaccines have been around for a very long time. Regardless of the, the method of delivery, what vaccines do in the body is the same. Um, it's like, you know, whether you order your groceries online or you go to a farmer's market and buy the groceries or uh, you go to a local chain and buy your groceries. When those ingredients come to your home, you, if you have like, I don't know, a recipe for chicken pot pie or whatever, the way you're going to treat those ingredients, regardless of where they came from, is the same. They're all going to be chopped up and washed and put in a pot or whatever. Uh, vaccines work the same way, regardless of the vehicle, the method that we use to get that antigen into your body, to that, that instruction to your body to train it. Um, we know how your body is going to respond it. And mRNAs in particular, because they are, every everybody has them. You have mRNA, I have mRNA. We understand, we know it's very well studied. We know how they are, how the body deals with them. We know, the, we know that it lasts only a few hours in your body, actually. It doesn't last a long mm -hmm. time. It has no way of getting into your blood system. It's stuck in that, and those few cells in your muscle that is injected, it stays there. It can't get out. Just, just absolutely impossible. It's just biologically, physically impossible uh, for it to be able to get out. Uh, it, it stays there for a few hours. It passes on the instruction and then dies away and goes away. Um, so these these are all understand uh, uh, very well understood, and we know it's been documented. Okay, you get a, you get vaccinated, there could be possibility of a sore arm. You could have fever. You could have pain. Some people might have some allergic reactions. There are others that might um, show a little bit of more serious side effects. You know that those very 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 rare cases of myocarditis, which I have to say the the risk of myocarditis from infection is 130 times more than the risk of getting myocarditis uh, post-vaccination. You mean infection from COVID, it makes you 130 times yes. more. Right. Yes, yes, that's right. So uh, in terms of long-term side effects, um, again, because this, this thing that you're injected with, it doesn't last in your body. Mm. It goes away within a few hours. And then the rest of it are your own molecules, they're your own endogenous cells, B cells and T cells, things that protect you every day from a million different pathogens. Those are the ones that are getting the instruction, 
and they've got this new instruction for vanilla uh, flavored cupcake and they're going to go make a million of it. Um, so that part of it's really well understood and studied and, and we know what it's going to cause and what it's not going to cause. So I don't have any worries about the long-term side effects of these vaccines or any vaccine for that matter. Um, and I, I hope I've, I was able to reassure people a, a little bit. Just really quickly, when you see, um, you know, like the the ovulation changes and stuff like that, I mean, I feel like a lot of women understandably, you know, if you're pregnant or whatnot and, and you're just like, look, I'm not going to take the, the chance on this because if it's affecting my menstruation, my menstruation, um, what will it do to the baby? What will it do to my body? You know, why if it's just kind of coding your own cells to adapt to the virus uh, and prepare yourself better, why does it change something like that, like something dra as dramatic as your menstrual period? Absolutely. And that's a, that's a great question. Uh, and I want to say, you know, as as a person with uterus who also <laughs> menstruates, you know, that those are important, important questions. And, and traditionally, women's um, health and inclusion of women in in um, like women related um, conditions and situations has been lacking, generally speaking, in, in, in medicine, in trials we, we, we design, you know, we exclude pregnant women, we, uh, we don't really look into um, uh, hormonal changes that can affect and that the sex and why sex, I mean, biological sex differences um, between people. What, what we are, science is getting better in terms of accounting and, and going back and looking at those things. So in terms of the vaccines, uh, these, these things have been indeed reported. And I experienced that uh, with my uh, second dose, uh, there was a little bit of a delay uh, with my um, menstruation. Um, these are not really um, because of the vaccine. Your body is, you know, and again, going back to the genetic diversity that we all experience and, and the, the differences in the, the genome and the types of uh, cells that, that we have in our body, um, your production of antibody mounting a response against uh, an instruction, you know, uh, the, I gave you that the cupcake recipe example, your body has received this cupcake recipe and it wants to go and produce a million of it, a hundred million of it. Um, it's a very resource intensive uh, tasks for, for the body. Um, uh, the body. Our body uses ATP, it's the, the, the currency of energy. Um, and so you are, you're using up a lot of that currency of your energy in your body. And so because of that, depending on a number of different factors, your genetic, your environment, your baseline health, your diet, there are a lot of factors that go into it. For some people, some normal processes will have to be put on hold for a little bit for body to divert resources and do this thing because it looks immediate and urgent mm. and then it's going to allow you to bleed <laughs> so it's so, so it's not fair to say that the vaccine is altering the the reproductive ability of of women on a large scale just that it uh, may delay your ovulation cycle for one month uh, yeah, so I I wouldn't even say it's it's really the vaccine. It's the process of 
um, you you mounting an immune response mm-hmm. because you see it you you see it even in people who get infected. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, that's it's interesting. Talk about you. You see right. it in people who get infected. <laughs> right. So it's it's just it's just your your body uh, trying to prioritize, and your right. body is very very smart. It's trying to prioritize what is more important. Do I am I going to lose blood right now, which mm-hmm. I have to replace, and that costs me energy, or should I need to invest this energy into making antibodies and protect the heart and the lung and the kidneys? Right. So clearly not a, a long-term thing. Um, but Shuvo, I'd love to hear your uh, personal story of what how you came to trust the vaccine for yourself and your family. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, some of what we've just been discussing, right, uh, you know, in the last few minutes, it kind of speaks to the fact that we have to be a little bit careful about um, labeling people who are somewhat vaccine skeptic as anti-vaxxers, right? There, mm-hmm. there, there is a distinction to be made between people who are questioning, who are concerned, or who are looking for information, um, and as a result have vaccine hesitancy, um, and those who are out and out anti-vaccination individuals, or those who are, you know, across the board anti-vax, not just about COVID vaccine. So. From my perspective, I, you know, I'm not an anti-vax person by any means. I'm, I'm a very, I would say, um, a reasonably pro-vaccination person. And uh, when the, I guess, let's say, the rapid process that went into developing the SARS-CoV-2 vaccines took place in 2020, I had my skeptic moment, right? Where I was thinking, okay, let's let's just be sure that it's not about the types of vaccines. I wasn't necessarily so concerned about mRNA vaccines as uh, a threat to my well-being or to, you know, my wife and myself um, if we were to get them. It was more about whether or not the reports that were going to come through it, from a scientific perspective were accurate about the uh, effectiveness of these vaccines, and also whether or not there were other things that might be added to these vaccines, which those are actually the things that you get concerned about. You know, sometimes it's about the preservatives that are used. Sometimes it's about some uh, reagents that are used in storage of the vaccine that sometimes will create other problems in certain individuals, not across the board, but in certain individuals. So. I just wanted to really know, well, what were these vaccines going to be? It wasn't the mRNA part necessarily that that made me think, okay, I don't know much about this vaccine. It was just because we didn't have all the clear ingredients and the manufacturing process established as we were waiting to hear about that. And so I had to kind of go through that that exercise in my own mind. Um, and you know, my my wife is also a physician, also a pediatrician. So the two of us have uh, the the ability to kind of sort through different aspects of literature um, in the medical, um, you know, sort of in the medical and healthcare field and, and different professions. And we we took our time to be able to be fully confident that we knew we were getting accurate information about this. It wasn't just simply because somebody made an ad saying the vaccine is here, here's your Pfizer poster um, <laughs> or your or your Moderna TV ad, which by the way, as, as you pointed out, we have a lot, lot less 
uh, practically no um, advertising in Canada from pharmaceutical companies about medications per se. But the thing is, there are a lot of people here in Canada who still see a lot of US TV. And so we right. still get those ads, you know, that mm -hmm. when we have like our cable channels or people are streaming right. networks from the US, you know, we're getting a lot of those ads. I mean, there's some blocking, but not not 100%. But all this to say, you know, it wasn't that wasn't the stuff that convinced us. It wasn't just because, um, you know, like, we just heard about this vaccine and this was the, you know, the golden ticket or the magic cure for COVID. If the vaccine is not a cure, it's, it's not a, it's not a treatment. It's not a, it's not an intervention for the disease process. It's a preventative measure. And it's actually part of a larger process of the public health measures that can be put in place. That's kind of what a vaccine campaign ends up being and we just wanted to understand that these vaccines were what they said they were not that they were just some you know placebo or a uh, very weak uh creation that was going to be marketed and governments were going to buy and then distribute but then would have no real effects on the population so we did our homework and we, we wanted to make sure we read the literature and we we understood and i think the the reality is you don't just check facebook pages and just google a couple of documents or some youtube videos to be able to know whether or not uh, the information that you're getting about ingredients and you know the the process of developing the vaccine and you know, who were the, the researchers behind it and what was the process of, of uh, uh, you know, sort of ethics approval, what were the trials, um, what did the trials show? All of that stuff takes time and effort and also the ability to have uh, to, to do a critical appraisal of the literature, which is something that you learn when you go through a health sciences education right, which happens in medical school or happens when you're in grad school or happens in nursing school. Um, it's not, again, everybody that gets that, the, the luxury or the privilege of getting that sort of instruction. It's pretty, it's pretty specific and it's actually kind of hard to do. And I would argue, again, not to, you know, badmouth my own uh, fellow professionals in medicine, but it's not even really well done by a lot of doctors sometimes, right? Like there, there's a lot of physicians out there who are just really, really bad at appraising the literature and, and really knowing what it, what happens, um, you know, in, in, a, in a process of evaluating research. But I had to kind of do that for myself to feel satisfied that I knew what was happening with this vaccine so that I could speak more confidently to my family members and, and to myself when I decided, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna take this vaccine and 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 it's gonna it's gonna do what it says it does, which I did understand, as Fatima you know mentioned, was not going to be prevent me from ever getting COVID if I was you know sort of walking around and during a super spreader event. That would that that's not what the vaccine would be able to do. It's just that it would be able to more likely than not prevent me from dying of COVID and more likely than not getting a bad case of COVID. And we're still waiting to see how many months or perhaps years that you get out of the vaccine coverage in terms of your immune system building up effective antibodies for this, because we're still too early in the process of even having vaccinated individuals to study, to look at, you know, does this, does this vaccine with a, a booster, you know, sort of a two 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 um, initial shots with a booster shot, does that last 
and effectively prevent infection um, getting severe from most of the current existing variants for 12 months, eight months, six months, 18 months. Like we're not 18 months out for a lot of people um, who've been vaccinated. Like we don't even have that that um, that number available to examine yet. So I, I think that just goes back to um, the point for me that it's not just lay people or people outside of the health system who might have some hesitancy or questions. And I, I, I think it's very important what Fatima said earlier that we're humanizing the reality that like people are allowed to question and, and that that they're part of our community too. But by the same token, the questions do have some answers and those answers need to be given some uh, validity um, and when they're transmitted by people who have knowledge and the desire to actually you know, share this public information with the best of intentions. And I think that skepticism that comes with the vaccine hesitancy or, or maybe worries about, the, uh, about a brand new, quote unquote, brand new vaccine um, kind of sift down to skepticism about the people who then are advocating for it. Right. And then it's sort of like, well, I had questions about this vaccine. I'm not sure I got you know, en enough answers about it because, again, these people are not able to critically analyze the medical literature. So then they're talking to people who did analyze the literature, but they have not yet let go of their skepticism. And then now they're skeptical about the people who did that appraisal. Right. And they're skeptical about, um, you know, individuals who are saying, here's why I'm telling you that this is actually a, a viable you know, way of approaching managing COVID, why the vaccines are actually a, a crucial part of a strategy. And it, the skepticism has not has now gone well beyond the initial question of what does what does this new um, agent that's going to be injected in my arm do to I don't really know if I trust medical professionals or healthcare mm -hmm. professionals anymore. And that's where we we get into a little bit more of the the difficult conversations where you you start losing ground, right? Because right. then those people are are no longer like working with the same basic set of information, and, and you're not you're not on the same page to have a conversation with them because they don't take you as a good faith actor. Right. And that's what I think is is really important for us to to step away from and just say the vast majority of people who are speaking about this are are not speaking in bad faith, right? We're not. Why would we? Like, there's just nothing to be gained in doing that whatsoever. There's zero gain. Um, it, it's really because we've critically appraised the literature and we're really trying to say, look, th there's no perfect solution here, but we've done it ourselves. <laughs> we've taken this vaccine ourselves. Uh, we know what it's supposed to do. And for the most part, that's what it's doing. Mm -hmm. And we're happy that it is. But there's no, there's no um, magic solution. There's no magic solution to a viral pandemic. Um, it is a process that has to kind of play out over time. And with a with a pandemic like the one we've got, the type of virus we've got, it is going to take more time. It just is. There's no way around it. Right. And I think that's a great way to wrap up, uh, you know, to my last question about the to the vaccine issue in general and just have a maybe one or two questions about uh, public health measures before we end. But, you know, uh, this is a great example, Shuvo. You are 
a medical doctor, uh, you had vac- some vaccine skepticism. So because you have the training and the access and resources, you could actually go through the medical journals and the studies and find out from your, for yourself as a professional if you felt safe uh, taking the vaccine. But uh-huh. unfortunately, most people are not medical doctors. And so what are most people doing who are uh, vaccine skeptic? I mean, in the U.S. in particular, it's a problem because something like one in four adults do not have a primary care doctor. And so, of course, a primary care doctor is the first person people should be asking for medical advice about the vaccines. But what most people are doing, it seems, or, or a a significant number of people are doing is instead of like you actually being able to go to the medical journals and understand them, uh, they are going to the internet to address their vaccine skepticism. And unfortunately, they're finding a vast industry of people telling them that they should be more scared of the vaccine than they should be of COVID. Um, A lot of this is actually taking data from you know, public health sources from peer-reviewed studies. I mean, I think one of the very common ones I see constantly is this one study of deaths in Scotland that showed more people died who were vaccinated than who were unvaccinated. And it's presented without context. Uh, of course, they, people always love to crop that little table or omit the fact that the people in that study table with the lowest death rate were people who were boosted. In fact, they were like eight times uh, more likely to or eight times lower death rate than people who were unvaccinated. But, you you know, I left out the context that Scotland has about 100 percent vaccination for people who are over 50. So that explains why in this one small uh, data set from like a a small period of time in in one place um, showed that more people, yes, died who were vaccinated than unvaccinated because it was all elderly people. Um, But uh, I but people find things like that. And then beyond that, they find doctors who are pointing to these studies and others to make them scared. They find, uh, you know, people like Peter McCullough, Robert Malone, this other guy Mm -hmm. I see a lot, Dr. Richard Urso, who straight up says nobody should get the vaccine and nobody should wear masks, that even N95s do nothing. So do not wear a mask. Um, And, you know, there was just this big rally in D.C., 30,000 people called Defeat the Mandates. And the main program at this rally was about 20 doctors in white coats, you know, all in costume, like stethoscopes Mm -hmm. uh, slung over them. I don't know if they have stethoscopes or not, but uh, they definitely were going for that effect with the uh, white coats and clipboards to show people we are doctors. And all of them Mm -hmm. were basically these doctors that say you should not do this and you should not listen to anyone telling you to do this. And so how like what is either of you can comment on this, but. You know, people are confronted with medical professionals who are telling them something completely different than what you are saying. And, you know, what do you what do you think of this, these people and, and what do you make of this, you know, dueling medical uh, narrative that's out there? Yeah, I mean, I'll comment quickly and maybe Fatima, then then you can jump on, you know, to sort of um, give a broader context, um, if that's OK. I'm going to say, first of all, I mean, the people who are somewhat skeptical get a a confirmation of their priors, right? When they hear a physician or a healthcare professional as skeptical as them, right? Or as skeptical as they are and saying, yeah, see, you know, I know you're kind of worried about this. Let me tell you exactly why you should be worried about this. Let me, let me, let me sort of fulfill the desire you've got to get a, a confirmation of your fears. And so that that's an immediate draw, right? Like right, right off the bat, like having somebody who's um, got a degree or has some authority 
on this subject matter, or at least more than the person who's listening, right? Like more than the person, the random layperson on you checking the YouTube channels finds a, a speech or a talk or a, a presentation by one of these healthcare professionals, it gives them that that sort of leverage to say, no, see, there's a, there's an expert out there who agrees with the exact same skepticism I have. So you know what? My skepticism isn't crazy. It's not it's not wrong. Or like my my stance on you know believing that the vaccine actually causes death much more than COVID causes death. Like, see, there's a doctor who says that. Like that that proves that I'm I my my intuition was right. So you you get this confirmation of priors, which is essentially um, shifting the the noise towards the biases against a certain point of view. But I think what's important is that when that happens, these same skeptical people often will not do due diligence to be skeptical about the the uh, the information they're receiving on an objective basis, right? So they do not then go back and try to examine who is this physician, what is their motivation, what advantage could they be getting from which pharmaceutical company or other company or politician and or corporation, or what's their history, you know, what have they been involved in over the years? What does that lead me to believe about this person's accuracy or motivations? They're not doing that second step because they've, they've had a confirmation of their own personal bias already. But when somebody's presenting them something that doesn't go with their intuition or their personal bias, they start digging in and start saying, well, maybe this person's paid by a pharmaceutical company. I'm, like, I'm sure they must be, right? And they, they, they might even build an entire fabricated story about what is likely to be happening behind the scenes for that person who doesn't agree with them. So my my point here to, to talk about that is that if, if somebody's going to be skeptical, they should they should be a true skeptic and they should examine this uh, information as objectively as possible. If they're they're being very subjective in their skepticism, then they're not actually being a skeptic. They're just being a contrarian. Right. And so that the idea should be really examine the motivations. And then you get into the secondary point, which I think Mike hits on uh, you know what you've talked about um and previously but i think you know right now and the question that you're asking is, is kind of implying that why are we equating a tiny minority of experts with the vast majority of experts as being equivalently valid arguments that we should be considering you know and and do this sort of like both sides debate it's very similar to what happens with, with climate science, right? Where you've got an extremely small minority of climate scientists or scientists who are not even involved necessarily in, in climate research stating these you know, uh, prognostications, these findings, these data, these are not really that accurate. We're not, we don't really have every, every bit of evidence to know what's gonna happen or be able to predict what happens you know, to the you know to the changing climate over the next decade or two or or ten, and then you've got 99 roughly percent of scientists who are saying the exact opposite of that and saying, oh my God, we we don't want to keep having to make that argument against this tiny min vocal mi mi minority <laughs> that that keeps pushing the agenda 
of politicians away from what we really need to do and achieve, right? And so that's kind of where we're at with a lot of the vaccine and public health measures, which we can get into in a second, um, you know, for a few minutes, but also just the COVID pandemic management generally is that the vast majority of healthcare professionals, and I think Fatima, you can you can pop in here now to, to comment on it, it, it understands and has analyzed this and has come to some conclusions. And there is a small minority of, of healthcare professionals who just want to be opposed. They might be contrarians, they might be misinformed themselves, or they might have other nefarious goals, right? And that's actually something that's worth examining is, you know, why are some of these people kind of in the same circles for various issues and various topics over the years and decades, and then are coming out on the side of opposing mandates, opposing vaccines, and opposing any belief that COVID is even real. That's that's a really radical minority viewpoint in health professions now. It doesn't have the same weight as 99% of the health professionals. They're not equal sides of the, the scale, right? Like they're, they're one side way outweighs the other. And yet we're kind of hearing those being debated as roughly equal viewpoints that we should try to figure out which of these two is, is a little bit more more real. And I, I don't think we should be doing that. I think we should be really careful to giving these outliers that much space to be uh, sort of uh, leading the debate or directing where the debate should go. That it's not that much of a debate on some of these things. It's a great point to compare this kind of consensus to the climate change argument, which, of course, we know now has been fueled by essentially oil corporations. I mean, that that really is who has been funneling and pushing this alternative narrative for so long, purposefully misconstruing, you know, what is very clearly uh, happening. And I, and I think you also see kind of a misinterpretation of reality where a lot of people who are maybe overly skeptical, right, or, or conspiracy-minded, um, basically saying, yes, COVID is real. Yes, all of these things can be real, but all of the responses to it is like some sort of globalist takeover and exploitation of a real issue. So because the government is responding to the crisis and because we're in this late capitalist society that's kind of dystopian, um, anything that is a public health measure to tamp down on the virus is basically going to be seen as some sort of authoritarian some sort of globalist takeover. But let's mm -hmm. talk about what should be done. I mean, you guys are in Canada. You guys are living a very different reality than we are in the United States. We we basically been thrown out to the curb and forgotten about. I mean, like our government mm -hmm. has basically just said back to work, we're moving on, no more checks, no more anything. Um, like everyone back to work, patting themselves on the back. All we got were these four at-home tests, which I haven't even gotten in the mail yet. <laughs> um, so in Canada, it's a very different story. There are actual strict mandates. I don't even I don't know if restaurants are open yet in places like Montreal and, and elsewhere, but I know that there's a very different reality going on. And mm -hmm. coupled with that different reality, there's a huge as we speak, there's a huge protest of convoys of truckers uh, mm -hmm. opposing the mandates. So let's just explore what you guys think as medical professionals, as what public health measures do work, should be instated, 
everyone's just very exhausted two years in. So we have, mm-hmm. you know, countries like the UK, which basically have completely lifted all COVID restrictions because they're saying with Omicron, it's just so endemic. It's just totally pointless to stop the spread. And then you have people pushing this notion of herd immunity um, from people like the Great Barrington Declaration. So, you know, and then you have people in the U.S. that have basically just it's different from state to state. So you have mask mandates in some states. You have governors completely lifting everything. It's just a mess. It's a complete and total mess. So I know that we're speaking from two different, you know, very different things right now. But I guess as scientists, as doctors, how can it be understood that the that COVID can be curbed, can be mitigated, and can be controlled? Sure, you know that's a that's a very difficult um, question, and and it's because it's not um, it doesn't just relate to this crisis. It's it relates to almost everything else that requires. Um, population-wide coordination um, and response in order to mitigate. And uh, really, if we are, you know, if we, we take a step back and, and examine why we are at the point where we are, why there is this uh, sort of uh, black and white dichotomization of the situation where, you know, in reality, disease state or even infection is not like you know on and off thing there is it's a spectrum you get exposed and the viral load slowly slowly starts building up the same thing with immunity it's a spectrum you don't have zero and then hundred there you have like a spectrum of immunity and and uh, understanding that the same thing goes with with public health um when when it's something that is not you know it's not like um, a, t- a type of disease that affects just pockets of society and it's not uh, spreading to other people. Um, it's the, it, the problem goes back to the fact that for decades and decades, our public health institutions have been underfunded. And it's the same is true uh, for Canada as it is in the US. Our public health institutions have been underfunded at our school system and science education and, and, and health education has been vastly neglected. And so we now we have generations of people who um, are left to their own devices when it comes to uh, understanding what, what public health does and what it stands for and, and why it should be trusted. And also making trying to make sense of all this humongous amount of information and a lot of misinformation that is that is thrown at them. For me, um, I always try to, uh, because of my, my own background and, and the journey that I uh, that I've left and, and um, my cultural uh, background of, you know, having lived under true autocratic and authoritarian regimes, um, some of this is, is a little funny for me because, you know, people who, who are out in the streets shouting freedom, they, they have no idea what, it, what it's like to have actual, not act, have actual freedom. Um, but it's, I, I, I always try to empathize and, and, and take it back to empathy and, and, and understand what 
what can we do? What are the best strategies that can protect the most lives, um, but also um, make sure that the impacts uh, on, on various pockets of society are, are reduced? And, and some of that can be addressed by, you know, making sure we do reinvest in, in public health um, institutions, in, in public schooling, make sure that um, uh, th there is a little bit of trust building and that trust building um, will require grassroots commitment, community-based commitment, because, you know, when you have a racialized community that has very good valid historical reason, um, listening to somebody on mainstream media or even their, their clinician might not be enough to have them convinced that masks are good. Uh, lockdowns aren't really the best tool, but we need them right now in order to uh, mitigate uh, what's happening in the society. The same is true for the trucker who is, you know, <laughs> demonstrating and blocking roads, and he has some sort of anxiety. His anxieties mm -hmm. might be related to the fact that he thinks his identity is under threat and he's not, you know, um, his rights are being infringed upon. Uh, the, the best way to, uh, to reach out to him is through grassroots and, and uh, communities, uh, grassroots activities and initiatives that relate to him. Um, I will say that the best way to make, to get any message across is when you make sure your culture, the context and identity align. You need to have the alignment of the oldest three. For, for the message to get across, for the trust to be built, for, for you to be able to convince people that you need to be wearing masks, uh, for you to, to, to be able to even convince politicians, you know, uh, to, to listen to you as a scientist and, and uh, follow the data and follow the science. Um, and that takes a lot of work, like that takes society level work, that takes every single one of us taking the bits that we have control over and engaging, you know, if um, learning and providing resources to people who have uh, hesitant or an anxious family members, helping them how to navigate those conversations, which can, which can be very difficult conversations. But those are the people who will get through to those people, to, to the unvaccinated loved ones. So these are all things I, I, I say for me, it all comes down to each one of us being responsible citizens of the world, not forgetting that we are not alone, that our independence relies on interdependence. It's our, the, the autonomy that we like to enjoy and, and fight for and go in the street and shout for. That that relies on a lot of interdependent relationships. So being good citizens. Yeah, and, and Shuvo, before I get yeah. your response on this, I mean, it, yeah, you know, I was like I was listening to an epidemiologist recently talk about how you really uh, fight the spread of a virus. And of course, if there's a vaccine, you factor in the efficacy of the vaccine, you factor in the percentage of the population that is vaccinated. And then public health measures have to come in to fill those gaps where vaccine efficacy and rate of people, amount of people that are vaccinated, where that falls short in actually controlling the spread, especially with something extremely infectious like SARS-CoV-2. Um, and, and then so this 
question of what public health measures are too much and what are really necessary has really become a flashpoint now in both of our countries. And while we are, you know, in the U.S. going through, I mean, we were at 4,000 people a day dying. I, I, hopefully we're not still on that peak, but we've we've been in that peak for the past week. I think there was, um, uh, I think in the month of January, 60,000 dead. Clearly, COVID is manageable because other countries are looking at us, uh, Japan, South Korea, China, Vietnam, and they are not only living their lives mostly normal, absent a few you know, lockdowns whenever they are necessary, but not only are they not dealing with the um, the lockdown situations and things like that, but they don't have the constant fear and anxiety that their family members are going to get sick and die. I mean, they have an extremely, extremely low death rate. So clearly there are things uh, that can be done. But instead, now that we are in this this other uh, surge of COVID, which is the highest surge since the peak of COVID with Delta, we have this just huge debate over, I think what's this broad term of mandates, but really mandates means a lot of things. It means uh, showing proof of vaccination to go out to eat, travel on an airplane. Uh, it means social distancing when you're in line at the post office. It means having to wear a mask and this idea that, you know, mandates are too much and it, it should be left to something else. And so, Shuva, what are your thoughts on this huge debate that is playing out and and the idea that actually lockdowns are are hurting people and causing mental health strain and all of that? Yeah, so, I mean, that's a really an excellent point. Like, I'll just answer, you know, one thing right off the bat, which is um, something that people don't seem to understand is that the mental health outcomes that are that are very valid and really important for us to look at, um, the negative impact uh, that's happened on mental health during the pandemic is significantly tilted towards people whose mental health was not impacted by lockdowns, but by the fact that they've got family members who've had COVID or are at risk of dying or having severe uh, disease process with COVID. And, you know, I see that personally with the patient populations that I follow, many of whom have uh, developmental or behavioral issues. And some of them uh, very clearly have had a uh, deterioration in their clinical functioning because they're just so uh, worried or uh, suffering the trauma, sort of PTSD and fallout of either losing a parent or a family member or having somebody that was close to them in their family or even a friend who was severely ill um, and hospitalized. And that panic and fear and anxiety has actually push them over the edge towards having um, a, a bout of clinical depression, suicidal ideation, or anxiety and panic attacks that are really, really hard to manage. So the, the mental health outcomes are not so much um, impacted by lockdowns or virtual schooling as much as they are by the actual impacts of the disease itself. And I think that's really important to get out there because there have been actually um, meta-analyses done since the beginning of the the pandemic about what are the the major uh, sorry major difficulties that are faced by say youth um, who have experienced 
living with masks when they go to school or having to do online courses for a year or who don't get to see their friends as often as they used to and are not in you know sports activities or extracurriculars like they used to be. And it's still pretty clearly shifted towards the morbidity on the mental health side of people who've experienced a loss of a parent, loss of a family member, or witness somebody close to them with severe COVID illness. And that's who we are seeing having really, really worse outcomes mental health-wise. And I think this broader debate about mandates is really, it's an important one because I think what we're, what we really kind of probably should think about is that, you know, we can't just make a universal claim to say, that mandates are either good or bad because mandates, like Mike, as he's mentioned, are very broadly interpreted now. But we have examples of countries that you spoke about and others where there were the gaps filled, clearly filled by some of these other recommendations where people, the, the majority of the citizenry was able to follow through with those. And I have to say, to some extent, that has happened in Canada where there have been more um, restrictions in place than the, the vast majority of the United States. And that filling in of the gaps has probably allowed for uh, uh, the healthcare systems to, to survive and to skate through this without the crash that might have been predicted. And I think that's ultimately really important. There's no, you know, again, there's no like one solution like saying everyone locked in their houses for 30 days, and that's going to sort of be the answer to, to stopping a pandemic from going out of control. But anything that can logically be done to mitigate the spread that still works with the basic balance of being able to, uh, you know, sort of live a healthy life as best as we can in a pandemic, knowing that it's not exactly how it was in 2018 and 2019, it just isn't going to be exactly like that. And maybe we'll get back to some some version of that or maybe very close to or maybe even exactly like that eventually. But we have to be able to say that maybe there are just some new measures that we need to be aware of and cognizant of that we should be taking that help ourselves, our neighbors, and those who don't have the luxury of even having a, an immune response mounted to a vaccine, like severely immunocompromised individuals or children under five, to be able to kind of still live and breathe and do the basic necessities of life, right? So I think that's kind of how we should see mandates that, you know, any mandates, whatever they might be, you know, you take them with a grain of salt because you have to figure out like, well, why are they being recommended and in what way? To, to give you another example here in Quebec, we had curfews that were imposed on us um, around the holiday period, and there wasn't really a lot of logical thinking behind them. They were recommended as if they were like, that was the, the silver bullet, right? Okay, Omicron, we're going to stop because we're going to have curfews at night. Like, no one's out after 9 p.m. <laughs> yeah. like, what, is that, what does that do? Like, what, okay. Right, it just seems like, like it's exacerbating the irritation of people being like, yeah. what? Like, it's like <laughs> it doesn't make any like, sense. Yeah, it's like not that many people are out, like, you know, wilding it up in the middle of the street, like in, the, in January in Montreal when it's like 20 below at, <laughs> at, at 10 p.m. Like, that's not when the bars were having their best business, right? It's like, it was the stupidest thing because people were saying like, 
I'm, I'm not out at 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. on a Tuesday night anyway. Like, what, what is the point of this curfew? It was like all like political theater, right? But it just pissed people off. It pissed people off to say like, what, they're telling me I can't leave exactly. my house, right? Oh man, like, I'm, like, I hate these people. I hate this government and I hate all this 1984 shit that's coming down on me now. What needed to be done was actually logically looking at what are measures that will help prevent the spread and will actually lower the impact on our healthcare system. And maybe we need to kind of allow ourselves to have certain aspects of our life not be as pleasant as they always used to be prior to the pandemic, but that's what's gonna help us get to the next phase where we won't have to implement these things in perpetuity. Like that, that's where we don't wanna go. And people are not realizing that it's by opposing this sometimes that's prolonging it. And if they don't want us to get to the point where it's like 12 straight years of people having intermittent lockdowns, then don't oppose the one lockdown that you needed while the healthcare system kind of balanced out and got people enough inf information that we then move past it. You know, it's, 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 it's that sort of logic that we need to kind of make sure we're all using when we're knee-jerk op opposing some of these things, right? If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, because the Supreme Court knocked down the mandates that Biden had imposed for federal workers. Hmm. So where does this leave us today? Because I don't think mandates are the solution. Um, you know, there's there's quite a bit of it's very obvious that a lot of people are not going to comply. And mm -hmm. I totally understand where they're coming from. So I guess just any closing thoughts from you, Fatima, about where do we go from here? In terms of mandates, you know, I, I, I'm going to put my bioethics hat on. Um, mandates are, um, first of all, there there is clear science, and this is not just new science. This is when we look at the history of mandates being imposed. Uh, mandates work. There is evidence to show that mandates work. Vaccine mandates or other types of mandates are temporary measures. They are um, proven scientifically uh, and, and in terms of, you know, uh, behavioral sciences, that they are indeed effective. There are usually, uh, from bioethics and public health perspective, when, you, when you're thinking of constituting a mandate, there are uh, three, uh, there are a lot of things that you think about, but the, if I have to distill it down, there are three major uh, requirements. Is number one, the compound that you're mandating a thing that you're making people to take is it safe and effective do you do we have enough evidence to show safety and efficacy and in terms of vaccines that's a resounding yes they are very safe and they are very effective in what they were meant to do and that is protection against disease hospitalization and death number two is there equitable access to this thing that you are saying people should take and thankfully for us and to our great shame for the what's happening to the rest of the the world we are drowning in vaccines the vaccines are everywhere here in north america and number three and and this is really really important is uh, figuring out can you reach 
the level of immunity required or, uh, you know, the collective immunity, the herd immunity, can you reach that level without having this thing implemented? And right now, for the U.S. and for Canada, we are at a point that that's not doable. If you, um, the way that some of the sentiments uh, are in, in people, the way the misinformation has infiltrated people's minds and hearts, um, it's very difficult to reach that level of immunity without mandates. And all of that, it, it's um, when you think about them, you 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 can't really consider mandates, public health mandates, public health measures, in the same with the same bioethics and uh, lens that you look at um, when you're looking at a clinical individual intervention where you say it's my body it's my right you're you can't force me to take it because um as as i'd mentioned before you're when it comes to population-wide situation your independence your autonomy is reliant to other people's independence and autonomy and the last thing i'll say about um lockdown um Lockdowns are blunt instruments. Public health people, scientists, clinicians, they don't like them. Mm -hmm. It's, they are, um, like I said, it's like, you know, trying to get in there and uh, stop a bleed and I'm using a chainsaw to get in there. There is going to be a collateral damage with, with lockdown. So that's not, I want, I, I hope people appreciate that that's not, what science hopes for, what that's not what public health ho hopes for. Lockdowns are a direct consequence of mismanagement. L lockdowns mm. are imposed usually when, um, usually at the beginning of a crisis, when you don't know, you don't have much information about the what the pathogen is, how it's in, uh, affecting, so you put everybody in lockdown. But at this point, two, two years into the pandemic, if a place needs to go into lockdown and use this blunt instrument is because there has been mismanagement because mm -hmm. other important effective public health tools have not been used properly to bring transmission down, to protect the vulnerable, to protect the health systems. And you get to a point where you just have to force everybody to stay home. So I learned so much from that interview. What do you think, Abby? I was blown away. Um, one part that was really impactful for me was just when Fatima was talking about the death certificate thing. It was just like, damn, like the weight of someone who just does that, you know, every day, especially like dealing with the pandemic. And it's like, you know, hearing whiny brats like Barry Weiss daring, have the, having the audacity to be like, I'm done with COVID. And it's like, dude, what the fucking like people who are filling out these death certificates. It's like, the weight that you carry on your shoulders of like knowing that just these people's lives just ended too soon and it didn't have to be this way. It's just very frustrating. But that part just really hit me. I don't know why. I guess because I never knew how much work really and like how serious it, like it is to actually fill one of those out. Yeah, for me, um, it just makes me more mad at <laughs> this whole media landscape of people doing misinformation. You know, we said at the beginning that um, we have nothing but sympathy for people who are vaccine hesitant, vaccine skeptical, whatever you want to call it. 
um, which is true and, and is still true after uh, doing that interview. But uh, I don't know about you, Abby, but I have absolutely no sympathy for people that are doing the misinformation content. I'll say like I've lost a family member to this who I knew for my entire life died of COVID. Uh, his family members did not believe that masks worked uh, and they were against wearing masks. Um, so maybe they found that guy, Dr. Urso, who was the main doctor out at the beginning of the pandemic, who said, do not wear masks. They do nothing. This is all just liberal bullshit or whatever. So, you know, I, I'm, of course, not the only person that's been uh, impacted by this misinformation stuff, but uh, it's just truly disgusting. I mean, it's it's truly disgusting for people to speak with such authority and confidence about something that's so clearly wrong um, and pretend it's just in the interests of, uh, you know, just just providing an alternative opinion or um, getting the other side of the story and so forth. I don't I don't think that's what it is at all. And I think after listening to Shuvo and Fatima actually give real answers to these questions that that many people have, it just frustrated me, frustrated me even more about just the the audacity people have to do such such disingenuous uh, reporting. You know, a lot of the disinformation agents on right wing media and also politicians like DeSantis are very prominent figures out there denouncing the vaccine as dangerous and rejecting mandates and all that stuff. What is the most disingenuous part about what they are doing is that they are all vaccinated. <laughs> like, that's what's so funny to me. It's like, it is so fucking fake. Like, they want to say, like, liberals are virtue signaling. What the fuck do you think that Governor DeSantis is doing? You know, like, he's out there literally point blank being asked, are you vaccinated and boosted? And he was just like, I got what I got. So basically, you are. So why don't you just come out and say that, man? Get some balls, just like Trump's saying. Like Trump is out there being like, like you guys are are cowards. Just admit that you were vaccinated and boosted. Like Trump is out there being like, you guys are pathetic, because it's just con- it's just totally placation for constituencies, and it's completely dishonest. Fox News, as well as almost every corporate news agency, as was admitted by C- CBS, I think, and CNN, there are vaccination mandates to work there. You're telling me that Tucker Carlson is not sitting up there vaxxed and boosted, you know, talking about how just repeating all of this, this fear mongering hysteria. I mean, it's just so insulting. The problem is that it starts off about mandates, right? Of course, I think a lot of people who are civil libertarian minded could be like, yeah, I don't support compulsory vaccination. Sure. But then it, 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 it it's a slippery slope, though, because you you start to realize really quickly that it's not really about that. Because if it was just about that, I feel like a lot of us would just be able to move on and agree. It's about actually the reality that COVID is as deadly as it is, right? And that's really what the crux of this comes down to. And then you realize that some people just don't care. Um, even if this many people were dying, it, it's simply, well, those people had pre-existing conditions. And that's where it gets kind of dark because, you know, I I, I tend to just assume that people care, you know, that the, that social Darwinism doesn't define, you know, the way people think. But I think that troublingly, you find that opinion more and more prevalent when, you know, when you start really peeling back the layers here. 
But this whole anti-mandate thing is actually pretty broad. It also is mask mandates where masks are important to stop the spread. It's anti-social distancing mandates. Like, you know, when you're in line at the post office indoors that they're against the mandate that you have to stand six feet apart. Pretty normal and not difficult thing to do. And it really uh, flows from just this libertarian, anything the government tells you to do, or if you let the government tell you to do anything, we are one step away from Nazi Germany. And that's actually why this whole Holocaust uh, symbolism was so prominent at that defeat the mandates rally, because it's this libertarian thing. It's saying if you let the government tell you to do anything, including wearing a mask indoors or standing six feet apart at the post office, you are paving the way for fascism and open tyranny. And that's really the, you know, when we were trying to figure out before, what is the motivation of a lot of these doctors and doing such dangerous misinformation? Well, a lot of them are just political libertarian right-wingers. And, you know, one of these doctors that was speaking at the Defeat the Mandates rally works at this super right-wing think tank in Washington, D.C. I mean, they come from these same sectors that, you know, other nefarious political figures come from in the field of of law or politics or or any other field of expertise. There's also doctors who are right-wingers and will uh, bend their their ethics to meet their politics. Uh, so yeah, and I mean, I think that just, and it's just totally unethical, the, the doctors that are doing that, but also, again, on that, that issue of media creation, people that are in over their heads and talking about stuff that they have no a right to be talking about and the people that are kind of consciously, you know, bending information or whatever. It's just completely unethical and and irresponsible and, you know, should be treated as such. Yeah, I think what Jeremy Corbyn said about the vaccination mandates and passports thing was interesting. And, you know, I he's someone that I greatly respect. And he was just like, you know, it's a problem when something's compulsory because then it becomes about what do you do to the people who refuse? Mm -hmm. And then you create these kind of unnecessary schisms at a time when we live in such a decrepit, um, such a decayed empire. And it's so toxic and rotted that like, again, like I, I just think that this is a problem because it's just going to further divide working class people. And, you know, I think that, agree or not like i think that this goes far beyond that and the problem is that when you offer a third way like you know for example i was talking to someone the other day about testing and i was just like okay like totally get where you're coming from like i think we're on the same page about the mandates thing what about testing compulsory testing as a third way for schools for jobs like all of that and he was just like no that's also like like doing the bidding of Wall Street. And it's just like, okay, so well, if you if you don't agree with mass testing, then like where where are we going to go with this, you know? I mean, it's like if you're just rejecting all of it and then it basically came to the point where he was like, I don't want to do anything because it's like infringing on my right to just exist and be free in society. So then it just is like, okay, well, then I then there's nothing to really talk about, you know? That is a, a great alternative, right? Mass testing, freely available, tens of millions of tests. Um, when we were in Europe, we got like 20 tests without even, like we didn't have to prove that we were a citizen of Scotland. We just got them because that's how plentiful they are. Um, and so that that's first and foremost what needs to happen. Of course, we all deserve healthcare in the middle of a global pandemic. But, you know, I think that as socialists and as leftists, our duty is not to say 
we shouldn't do anything because our government is so fucked up and so distrusting. It's organizing an efficient response that we would like to see, right, in a society that we would like to envision. So a utopian vision of what what could the government do and organizing accordingly to to make calls for things that we need and know that that are necessary during a, a health crisis like this. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, you're right. Like this, the fact that so many people are unvaccinated in this country that's a failure of the government. It is the government's job. It is a system's job to win people over, to make sure people are educated, make sure people have enough contact with doctors. And, and the fact the Biden administration approach to like tweeting every day, get vaccinated, and then like issuing a formal <laughs> statement, you know, as we are going into the Omicron wave saying, well, if you're vaccinated, life's going to be great for you. And if you're unvaccinated, you're going to die. And that's on you. I mean, that is a a complete catastrophic failure of the government to ensure that enough of the population uh, has a vaccine that is really the keystone of getting through the the, the COVID crisis. Um, and you know the the problem is is that because the such a small percentage of the population is vaccinated for what we need. I mean, there's a lot of pe most people are vaccinated, but uh, there needs to be a much higher number for it to really be able to to stamp down on the pandemic that there you know you there has to be public health measures that fill those gaps of where vaccine the vaccine rate is is lacking and it's so fitting that in the American empire that as we are experiencing just this horrible horrible mass death on a daily basis upwards of 4000 people a day through the omicron surge it's just so so stunning that there's actually demonstrations against the very few remaining public health measures that remain. I mean, people who support, not lockdowns, uh, but people who support uh, robust public health measures to compensate for the fact that the government's totally failed and the, the vaccine is, is so limited in terms of who the numbers of people that are taking it. Um, these are people that genuinely care. The left cares about human life. The left is compassionate. Uh, many of these people that support these measures, which is most people, most people support mask mandates in schools, out of schools. Most people support uh, vaccination requirements for certain jobs. These are things that most people uh, support, but they don't support these things because they're like fascist or authoritarian. But people have lost people. People have lost friends. People have lost family. People are terrified of losing family or more family. People are terrified of themselves becoming seriously sick, long-term risks of COVID, short-term risks of COVID being like death, you know, things like that. People are legitimately scared. I mean, this is a mass death pandemic. I mean, there's no way to, to like downplay what is happening right now. And so to kind of turn those real fears and desire of people to see something positive and good happen and to save people's lives on a large scale, to turn that into like fascism is just, Another thing that's just really gross and and also serves that it's part of that con artistry It's to label people who want something good as actually the evil fascists uh, and that we are the ones that are here to liberate you, which really means, you know, letting the pandemic do, rip, uh, which, of course, you know, I, I think I saw an estimate that if that was done and there was no vaccination, the death would be at like 20,000 a day, not, you know, 3000 a day in a country like ours. It kind of reminds me of gun violence, to be honest. Mm -hmm. No matter how many people die at the hands of guns, 
no matter how many mass shootings come to define our very warped society, you cannot pry guns from our cold, dead hands. And I think it's kind of the same thing here. It's like we are so indoctrinated into the notion of uh, capitalism and rugged individualism that we just inherently reject without even understanding why. Like anything that may impede on just our ability to just do whatever the fuck we want. You know, trample on whoever we want, invade whoever we want. It is like the empire baby mentality. It really is. It's American exceptionalism embedded, baked in so extremely that even people who think that they're woke or anti-imperialist or whatever could even be indoctrinated with this mentality where you do think you are entitled. You're entitled. Um, And especially if you haven't experienced the loss. You know, a lot of these communities have been completely ravaged by death and sickness. Uh, We live in L.A. We have a lot of people who who are in our circles who are in the Latino community. They have been ravaged by COVID. Look at the native community here, the survivors of the mass genocide. Um, They are almost some of the most affected, right? And to kind of callously disregard the people who are dying the most, which is over 65 as, oh, well, they were over 65. Those are elders. Those are people with lived experience that is extremely important for us to cherish and hold sacred. I feel like there's not going to be any more measures here. What we just went through for the last two years is basically all that's going to happen. And we're in a country that where individual freedom trumps everything else, including safety, of course. So anything that the government has done or will do here will inevitably be seen as a sign of authoritarianism. And lastly, I mean, there's a a little bit of this out there, but this idea that is it is the anti-imperialist position to... um, uh, not believe that COVID is as bad as people say and and not trust the vaccine like that's and not support public health measures uh, that that is actually anti-imperialism. I don't I don't really know where that comes from, but uh, because that is a thing that's been thrown at us and that we're not true anti-imperialists because we believe the mainstream COVID narrative, uh, I, I do want to say what that you can have an anti-imperialist view of the pandemic. And uh, maybe there's a couple things we can just mentioned briefly of of uh what that what that looks like um you know when the pandemic first started we did a whole short documentary called uh trump exploits covid for more war where we explored how the pentagon actually exploited the health crisis to increase pressure on countries that they were sanctioning or bombing. And we went through the entire list of everywhere that they actually used the vaccine to uh, attack other countries. And that's a that's a big uh, a big and serious issue that people should uh, look at. Here's a here's an anti-imperialist demand for the pandemic. Number one is the U.S. should lift all of its sanctions everywhere. It is sanctioning countries like Cuba, countries like Iran, Korea and elsewhere, countries that are needing to very much to have access to things to deal with the pandemic. The pandemic is a global pandemic, meaning that it doesn't matter if it's controlled in a bunch of countries. As long as it's not controlled in other countries, it threatens the entire world. And so if the U.S. empire has any interest whatsoever in moving on from this period of mass death pandemic, they have to allow other countries to breathe and fight the pandemic themselves, which means lifting all the sanctions and act of war that the U.S. is doing against so many countries around the world. And and in that same vein, the vaccine intellectual property 
have to be open and shared with everyone. The fact that the U.S. empire and this big pharma companies are hoarding the vaccine uh, formula. I mean, you have a country like South Africa that's actually trying to reverse engineer the uh, Pfizer vaccine. And they said it's going to take them probably about five years to reverse engineer it. I mean, can't you just give them the thing? I mean, it was all created through public institutions anyway, and Big Pharma was just able to come and scoop up the research and uh, put their patent on it or whatever. And so that's another anti-imperialist demand, is for the U.S. to release the vaccine intellectual property so that every country in the world can have it. And of course, you know, countries like rich countries, like the imperialist countries, they have more vaccines than they know what to do with, while there are countries that, you know, have none. We have a government that is spending the vast majority of our budget on weapons, on military expansion, things that we absolutely do not need at all, where there is no investment, no real determined strategy to stop the mass death of working class people here. I mean, we can't even get, you know, when Biden was campaigning, he promised widespread access to tests for that everyone could have these at-home tests. And instead, we're getting this one round of tests uh, one time. And, you know, we don't even know if they're going to come in the mail. It's probably going to come way after the surge is over. Um, and so, you know, while they're rushing weapons to Ukraine to possibly start World War III for absolutely no reason, uh, they can't rush COVID tests to people here at home. And that's something that very much resonates with working class people and has a, a, a message of anti-imperialism with it. And also there are anti-imperialist countries that have led the way, that have shown that a socialist system can do something far superior to what a capitalist system can do. The failure of this system of capitalist imperialism and the uh, contrasted with the success of socialist planning. I mean, people, uh, places like Cuba, places like China, which are having much different uh, lives and responses to the pandemic as we are. You know, the U.S. response is totally held back by the desires of big business. Of course, the the people that are astroturfing a lot of these uh, demonstrations to may have even less public health measures. The U.S. response is totally a willing to bow to the needs of big business. Um, and that's what imperialism is. It's a stage of monopoly capitalism where those at the top rule everything and at the expense of everyone in the bottom 99% who are suffering because of this pandemic uh, when there's so much that could be done. 